AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is producer, music supervisor, jack of all trades, George Draculius. Hollywood footnote. <laughs> Good to have you here, George. Good to be here, Bob. Okay. So I noticed you rolled up in a smart car. How did you, uh, do you like that? It's my third one. Third one? Well, why do you need a new one? Um You'd be surprised. So it happened 2009, I think, or 2008. I saw online it was coming to America, coming to America, smart. Reserve now. Put $100 down. Build your dream smart car. So I put I put my credit card down, $100. I built a silver with a black trim, and I got the upgrade, which is, I think, at that time, some kind of dials, $100, whatever. And about two years later, I got a call, uh, Mr. Draculius. Uh, your smart car is here. I'm like, excuse me. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what if I don't like it? They're like, it's all right. We'll give you money back. You know, we just. It, but they, so they're Mercedes. So I got it, and I loved it. I, I absolutely love it. It's great. It's like if you're driving around and you're going out and like, hey, give me a ride home. Can you give me my drunk friend a ride home? Hey, man. I really love like, <laughs> do you want to get in the in the hatchback? And it's big. I mean, I'm a huge guy. You know, stupid guy in a smart car. But and then. Um, what else? So, like, if I go to set, like, say I go to the set, it's like, you know, crew parking is always, like, a mile away. But it's like, I'll, I'll just park under, like, I can park under the uh, under the Winnebago. All, like, you know, like, the base camp is. Like, I'll, I'll go in and just drive in. Everybody loves it. The valets love it. It's funny. They're like, this is the best car, man. You know, and they, you know, there's a Ferrari in front of me. They don't care. They get all excited about the smart car. And as they got older, well, older, whatever, they, as they kept improving them, they got them more glam. Now I have leather. Wow. Um... Inside, it's really decked out, and it's roomy. I've driven to I've driven to San Francisco. I mean, I wouldn't want to go much farther than that. I wouldn't want to go cross country in it. But okay, but when you're on the freeway, what's it like? I love it. My wife hates it. She she's like, 
uh, uh. I'm like, it's just a, it's a titanium roll cage. And I, I showed the videos online of a, of a smart car going 100 miles an hour into a, into a um, concrete, you know, the, those dividers. Right, barrier, right. Yeah, and they bounce off, and they come around, and one door is, like, fine. The other door is kind of broken, and the, and the people are still upright. I said, look, we'll have an open casket funeral. We'll be dead. <laughs> Because if you're going 100 miles an hour and you stop, that's going to – all your organs. But I said, but we'll have – you know, we'll look good. So I, I love it. That's fine. Okay, so it's kind of like the black box on an airplane. It'll survive <laughs> yeah, anything. Yeah, it'll survive anything. <clears throat> I, I love it. I absolutely love it. So there's no time. Obviously, she has a car. Yeah. There's no time when you say, hey, we won't go in the smart. I'll take the other car. Forgetting if she's not involved. No, if she wants to come with me. <laughs> or she's welcome to drive herself. We'll go to Santa Barbara. We have a friend who's got a place up there. Well, that's about as far as she'll drive in it. But it's she's getting used to it. It's safe. Okay. I mean, it's, and then how noisy is it when you get to like 67? It's great. It's a little bouncy. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's like, you don't want to do 80. Right. 70, 75, it's fine on the freeway. 80, 85, it, start gets, it starts getting a little weird if you pass a big truck. But um, it's like, I think it's like a turbo. It has an overdrive and you can trick them out even more. Mine's just pretty. Stealth black on black now, but I love it. And how about so you're talking about parking on set, but generally, is it a great advantage to have a car that oh, it's small? Awesome. I mean, my you know, if I any street you go to, it's always like, oh, there's, oh I can't fit in there. It's like, oh, I can fit in there. <laughs> I think it's only eight feet long. And so, but now they're not going to import them anymore. Oh no! All right, why? Who told no. you? I, I, I read about. It. I thought they're going all bit. electric. You know, the all electric one, yeah. But now they're not going to import they're not any of them. Electric either. No. Oh, well. I'm so you better it. make this one last. I'm leasing it <laughs> like an idiot. <laughs> okay. So I know now you're working on movies. Is there right. anything else you're doing now that I'm missing? Um, well, I'm running for city count. No, teasing. Um, I work on some movies. I may, I'm still making records. I just made a record with this band called Stereophonics. Um, yeah, sure. So you are still producing. Yeah. I mean, someone's stupid enough to hire me. <laughs> you curse on this thing? Yeah. Say whatever you want. You, to. you know the four stages of your career? Oh, yes, I do, but tell my audience. You know, it's, who's George Draculius? Got to get George Draculius. Jesus Christ, always, he's always booked. There's like a new, young, hot George Draculius. Who the fuck is George Draculius? <laughs> so I'm on that stage again. I've got to reinvent myself, and hopefully some young band, if you're listening and you're very hip, hire me. No, but it's fun. I mean, but I, I get to make a lot of music for the movies I'm working on. That's always fun. Um, uh, I get to, like— I've I recorded like Vince Vaughn. I've recorded Owen Wilson, Kristen, uh, uh, Kristen Wig. You know, so that's that's always fun. Like we get to use your skill set and like work with actors. Well, I'm a little. I thought you were like when you're talking about those people. If you're a music supervisor, see, I'm more than a music. supervisor. That's why I'm asking. So uh, you're recording them like you're singing. Wait, 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 tell us what. Tell us the four things you are. So <laughs> I'm very handsome. Um, so with the movie, like something. I'm trying to think of it. Like, so this TV show worked on Escape at Danamora. Did you watch that with Ben Stiller? I, I know. I follow it so close in the it's news. It's great. You I should watch it. It's great. Work. Really? It's great. Am I going to pick up on stuff that – It's really a lot of humanity. You'll love it. You'll okay. Love it. And they're wonderful. And he's, This is you know, the uh, Showtime the, series. Right? The, get, the two inmates of, are plotting with the uh, person who's working there, right. the woman. Well, they both start you know, getting it on with her. Right. And um, Patricia Arquette, who's wonderful. She'll probably win an Emmy, I guess. Emmy bait. Um so, for example, there's a flashback scene that takes place like in early – like mid-90s at outside a strip club and we want to use Wu-Tang Clan. Ain't nothing to fuck with. And um, I, you didn't know this, Bob, but they didn't really clear all the samples back in the day. So it's like this gray <laughs> – 
this gray area where they won't license it, but it's like an open secret. You know, it's like this kind of thing where, well, we can't the publishing cleared, but the master we don't right. know. So I know RZA, and I get to call RZA like let's let's remake this thing, and so we can use it. So like that kind of stuff is always fun. That's exciting right. to do. Um, same thing happened on this movie Due Date. Trying to use check yourself before you wreck yourself, and again, another thing that was gray area, ambiguous. So you got, getting to remake stuff like that is always fun, or. In uh, Walter Mitty, Kristen Wiig had to sing, so I got to record her, and then it turns to, I don't know if you saw that movie, but it turns to this big, she's singing, um, uh, what's that, Ground Control, the Major Tom, and it turns right. to this big thing, and so she's singing. She's a great singer also. She, she's also a great ukuleleist. Um, so that's always fun. Like, if I'm working on the movie and I get to create stuff, that's always fun. And then on a movie, what's nice, because I do know I'm not, the, uh, I'm not your average uh Picnic basket. What is, right, I'm, not, right. I'm not your average bear. What are they, right. I'm not your average park rate. Whatever it is, Yogi Bear. So I'll be able to use my You're, skills. But, but, but you, uh, well, the Yogi Bear didn't wake till noon. How about right, yourself? Exactly. <laughs> now I find myself getting up and just like sweating because you know, we'll get into that in a minute. But um, so like part of the thing is a director is like I don't know, man. I, I kind of like trying to talk to a composer, so I'm able to talk to a composer in musical terms and kind of it's like you know, like I don't know, it's just not. I'm like. Okay, you want to just change the beat here? But they tell you, oh yeah, I love it now. You're like, that kind of <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so that's always fun. So that's when it's fun. You know, when I get to use. Okay, my so in a music. perfect world, if you could be doing anything now, what would you want to be doing? Nothing. <laughs> would you, let's be clear. Nothing is not usually that happy. Right. No. Uh, I would. No. I would think. I think what I'm doing. I like to make more. Rec- I would like to make more records, and I like to. I like to make it more meaningful. But I don't know what, what it means anymore. You know, what I mean, it's kind of strange. Okay, yeah. wait, wait. You mean the what would be more meaningful? The process? Just the thing in the world. Like it have a Okay, well we talked about it at a gig. I remember we were at Staples Center and you right. say you used to have fights over records. Well, for, yeah, like we coming up we'd like you know, coming up it's like especially with rappers. Starting in you know, early 80s in in New York over rap, it was like the disc record where it was born, you know, and that kind of thing. So you'd like no, you ain't PMD or you know, you know, it's you know, we hated the West Coast for sure. That was like Fuck those guys! You know what I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, you would get into a fight like, or you know, that would be Beatles Stones or whatever. That you right. know, I think it was the same. It just carried on into hip hop or other stuff. So you just have arguments, but they're friendly. No, no guns usually. Right. Um, but I, I was robbed a few times. I like. Uh... <laughs> okay, let's stop there. When were you robbed? <laughs> well, they didn't get away, Bob. At the roller rink at the Roxy, there's a there's a great hip hop club called the Roxy, which was a roller rink and a hip hop club. And well, um, where is this? Manhattan, okay. 18th Street's gone. I was living on the West Coast, okay. 18th Street in the West Side, and um, I remember being online. There's two stories. One was being online. This, this is the mentality of, the, of like hip hop. But being online, it's like you, you crushed, you, you know, crushed in trying to get in there. For those who are not on the East Coast, online means in line, right? Not on queuing <laughs> <laughs> yeah, up. I don't know. Right, right. You know. You're online to get into the club, and you. Well, you know, today in. online is you know right. the internet. Hey, wait, wait. So you you squished in and. All of a sudden, I feel some like somebody's hand in my pocket, and like I got like bubble gum and four bucks. I'm not like you know, so I, for some reason I had a pen. I, st- I like stabbed. He's like, it's like oh, you're like, hey man, why are you stabbing? I'm like, you got your fucking hand in my pocket. What are you doing? You know, like just weird stuff like that. But the best was uh, the like Budweiser Superfest. It was like LL Cool J, Run DMC, um, Jekyll and Hyde, which is Andre Harrell was in this band called Jekyll. I don't know if you know right. that. But Jekyll and Hyde was a hip hop, and um. You know, I was backstage, and we had this, like, fur rabbit hat, which was very much very hip back in the day. 
Um, and they're like, where are you going? I'm like, well, I'm going to go out and check out the crowd. Like, mm, I don't know if that's a good idea. I'm like, it's okay. You know, I'm down. You know, so I was walking around. This is Madison Square Garden. I'm walking around the outer rotunda. And um, I start heading into the inner thing. And I see these two guys kind of coming out. And one guy grabs my hat and runs into the crowd. And I chase him down because I'm like, it's my, I'm like, and I caught him. I'm like, okay, cool. Give him my hat back. He's like, it's my hat, man. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I'm like, I got, you know. So mayhem ensues. I'm holding one ear of this this two-ear fur rabbit hat. I'm holding it, going back and forth. And then it's like, all of a sudden, a bunch of guys jump me. Same thing. They like, start punching me. I'm like, like, I elbow some guy. Hey, man, don't hurt. I'm like, what are you guys doing? You know? The hat rips. I keep the ear. I go back. And I remember Russell. <laughs> like, where's the hat, man? <laughs> I held up the ear. And I was like. <laughs> okay, yeah, you're so the type of. You had to be there. Yeah, but, no, I totally get it. Easy. You're the type of person, someone does you wrong. You don't get scared. You're going to just dive in. You're going to lean in. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought, like, okay, the gig is up. I, being normal, I'm like, hey, I got you, man. It's cool. Just give me my hat back. Let's just, you know. Right. It was that kind of thing. But it was a different It was a different mentality back then. I mean, we had this um, on Thursday nights. We had this thing called The Spot at Danceteria, which is a really great club where we'd go six, seven nights a week in the New York. It's a really great club. Okay, let's also be clear. What time would you go? You know, not till. 1231. Right. Yeah, no. And, uh, but this would start at probably 11. We had this thing called The Spot. It was Def Jam presents The Spot at Danceteria. It was the third floor. We'd have a DJ and maybe a, a guest act, like the Beasties would play there once or twice, or um, Spoon, you know, like Spoonie G. Somebody would come and do a rap. And we had this guy, um, who was the guy? Oh, shit. Was it? Busy B was the, M- the official MC. So he just basically talk shit. Hey, what's your favorite restaurant? Is it Needix? Is it Burger King? You know, and then he introduced the DJ, introduced the act. Got a hundred dollars to do that, to just and then look, pick up girls right. and get free drinks. <clears throat> so I was responsible for paying everybody. So and I usually pay them about two thirty, three in the morning, you know, or whatever before the club would close. He's like, "Hey man," he came to me like one o'clock. Hey man, can I get my money? I'm like, "Well, I haven't gone to the office." And I said, "I'll tell you what. Let me go up there now. See if I get paid." I go up there. I cut back down. I'm like, "Okay, here you go, hundred dollars." He's like, "Oh, I'm." Go back. So he comes up to me. He goes, starts. He goes, "Hey man, can I borrow twenty dollars?" And I was in college. I'm like, I don't know. Like, right? I said, I'll go upstairs see if I can get paid early and get you your money. Give him hundred. This is this now makes more sense. I give him hundred dollars. He's like, "Hey man, it's only eighty dollars." <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what? I go twenty, forty, sixty-eight. And it's a hundred. He goes, "Can you lend me ten? <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is a college. I was like, I was like, we gave you a hundred dollars. Rick pocketed most of the money, and I put like. Twenty dollars in my down my pants so I could like get into a cab and go home, but um, that was a lot of fun. I forgot where we were, but we just talking about no. New but York. what we're talking about really is uh, today as opposed to yesterday. Yeah, I guess. Um, I don't know. If, I mean, maybe kids listen. I don't know if kids listen to this thing, but maybe they are having more fun. I don't know right. if they are. I can't imagine they are to be honest, because you can't fuck up. You know, you, everything's everybody's tracking everything you do. Where they're posting everything they do, so you can't do something stupid and nobody know about it, or you can't like venture out out of your comfort zone for a minute, you know. So I feel tough. I don't have any kids, so it's weird. I don't. I'm not tracking it the same way. I think you, you know. know the, I don't have any kids yeah. either. The same thing, you know. Yeah. So it's it's hard to say. But then, like my nephew's 15. Um, he's just out here. Music's not that important to him. You know, I've tried to get him like, hey, you want me to get guitar? Nah, you know, he plays Dungeons and Dragons kind of thing. I took him over to Bad Robots, meet JJ Abrams. That was the you know that was like. You know, it's like making Hendrix for me or something like that. Um, so I don't know. And kids who are into music, I think it's uh, I think it's just another thing that happens. It's just kind of they're on their phone or whatever. It's just not – I don't know how it penetrates, you know. 
So you're ba- so let's talk about today's generation. You say today's generation music does not have the priority that it used to. I don't know if that's right. I mean, I think it does, but it's just different. You know, like you don't fight about the bands kind of a thing. Right. You, know, you know, I think it's like I don't think you invest as much into the acts. Okay, so if you talk to your 15-year-old nephew, he'd rather play Dungeons and Dragons. But if you go through some happening acts, does he know them? No. No, he doesn't know them. No, it's like maybe some of the pop stuff. You know, like maybe uh, uh, whatever the biggest pop records are, probably. He knows. You know, he's not going any deeper. Well, let's just go down this rabbit hole a little bit deeper. Let's say, would you go on record that today's music is not as good as yesteryear's? Different. You know, I can't Different. say. Well, then, well, then I can't a, say it's not as good. It's not as good to me. You know, yeah, that, that, I'm talking about for you. Yeah, for me, yeah, no, I don't think. But it's not made for me, right? I'm a 54 well, year no, old I man. Look, I look at it totally differently because music represented something different back then. That's true. I'm, I'm older than you are, right. and listening to the radio, the radio had its own hip news, whatever. That was the only outlet. Right. There were no video games, etc. And in your era, you know, there was it was a little different. You had the dominance of MTV, and then everything else could percolate. Right. So, you know, today there are many options. The other thing I know, a friend, I mentioned this all the time. A friend of mine wrote a book about Dwayne Allman. Dwayne Allman used to take his guitar to the bathroom right. to practice. N- almost no one's practicing that much anymore. Whether we make So, as I said, I don't want to make it a guitar as opposed to a keyboard, as opposed to a synthesizer or whatever. But there's so many other options to become famous and to have right. click that people are not dedicated to music as much as they used to be. Yeah, I don't, yeah, that's that I would say that sums it up. You know, it's just a different it's different. Okay. Know? But you've made rock records. So let's go deeper as I'm right. putting you on the record. Okay. Is rock dead? It's just changing. I think it's still I think the metal shows still do. It's there's always post just post pubescent teenage boys who want to hear, you know, big beats and go to these shows. So I think that's that's always going to make it regular rock, like straight up. I think that's pretty much over. I mean, is there any way to Greta revive Van Fleet, it? Be damned. I mean, I don't, I don't, I know it sold a lot of records. I don't know if it permeated. You know, right? Well, metal historically waxes and wanes, kind of like right. electronic music, but there's always a cult right. deep into it. Someone's going to buy a Ramones shirt. Someone's buying a Misfits shirt. Someone's buying a Motorhead shirt. Always, you know, that's gonna, those are your perennials. They come back like weeds. You know, they never. Well, I like, certainly think. The, they've sold more Ramones shirts than albums. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, but that's a big thing. I mean, I grew up in the era where you could tell somebody was hip how long their hair was. Right. And then once I had, you know, the nerds growing their hair, I immediately cut all mine off. I didn't, you know, that's my personality. <laughs> but at the same time, the people putting the Ramones shirts on their babies are the people who never listened to the Ramones when right. they were happening. No, but the other, my other, like, nickel tour, whatever, when I was a kid, Frankfurt is a recorder kind of thing was – how if a band came through town, you knew who went to the show. And it, it could be any, it could be an R.E.M. or it could be like, you know, right. Pavement. It didn't have to be necessarily a big metal band, but you'd see, you'd be a Tower Records, someone like with a, oh, I was at that show, you know, like, and like you had an instant, you found your gang, you know what I mean? The same right. way, you, and then you can kind of, it was like an instant thing. Now it's like, I think there aren't really, at least I don't see it. Even Kate, I don't see Katy Perry t-shirt. I don't even see anything like that. And if I see somebody wearing a t-shirt like Kenny Loggins, it's ironic. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's two hundred dollars, and it was they bought it vintage, and it's right. and they put some diamond. They they uh, got the um, stud muffin thing to put, whatever the bedazzler. They bedazzled it, and now it's like you know they're so it's all right. You know, there's no like that used to be how you defined yourself. You know, right. I think that's that's maybe we can talk about that. You know, right. I think that's like 
you were in this gang, you know, and you knew like who you you knew who your people were. Like, oh yeah, I was at the I went to the Pixie show or whatever, you know, that era. Well, the other thing about it is I have a friend who's a big concert promoter, and he's a little bit younger than you, not by much. And he says, I'm throwing a party. When we used to go to those shows, that was not a party. We were enthralled to right. the bands. It was really about the music. Forget that there weren't phones, whatever. You know, people, people are grazers now where we were just, wow, these are gods. How can we get closer? Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess the concert business, still, when it's good, it's good. But I don't think there's no – I think the band – who's probably the last band that's going to do arenas who's come through uh, at the latest – Maybe Muse is probably oh, the yeah. last. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm saying it's like the last band that could still probably right. play arenas in rock and roll. Other right. than that, Black Keys, maybe, if, depending on their- Black Keys, depending you know, they burned it out. They're coming back. Greta right. Van Fleet right. sells a lot, but not quite arenas. There's not going to be- I mean, they don't have a catalog to be an arena right. band yet, you know, to come back every year. They're not ACDC, you know? It's like- So, it'll be- It's interesting to see what'll happen. Um but I think people just want to go to events. Like you said, throwing a party. They don't care. It's, just, it's more important to go to Randall's Island than to see who's at Randall's Island. Right. Okay. But since you're very knowledgeable on hip-hop, do you believe there's a scene or not a scene? What's different in hip-hop? I do. I'm not – to be honest, it's a kind of – I have, I didn't leave hip-hop, man. Hip-hop left me. Um, I'm not as invested anymore. There are a couple of people I like, I like, like Thundercat, I think is a great producer or whatever. Like those people are talented, you know, and I've gravitated at Kanye, you know, I guess he's a genius because he says he's a genius, but <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, I feel like there's nothing really, the Hova, I'm still impressed with him. You know, I'm impressed with his voice. I'm impressed with his, his rhyming style. But um, I don't, I, what was nice, and again, not to talk like an old guy, oh, crouchy old guy, but you, the thing was the record, and it was being heard, and it was, a, it was aspirational. And now it's like, got my footwear brand, you know, it's like, and now there's so many other things involved with it, it doesn't feel as, as pure anymore, you know? And right about, what about the beefs? Do we- <laughs> Meek Bill, I, Drake, etc. Yeah, I, I think they shut the. They should have. Like, they should have a coke and a smile and shut the fuck up. I mean, they get paid. They get like, like. There's no reason to be beast. Back, you know, when they were 12 inches and you were in different hoods and you were still living with your grandmother in Queens and you, the other one was living. That was really, you know, that was still. You know, I, I don't have any. Sorry, Drake. Whatever, Bill. I, I, millionaires don't. Who you know, in beefs don't excite me. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing, as you mentioned earlier. They're more about the brand than the music. Right. It's like people want to be famous as opposed to be musicians. It's just a stepping and stone. It's fine. I went to see, uh, you know, I got an Instagram account. Maybe I have 3,000 followers, whatever. I don't, I don't, don't post that much. But um, I went to see Travis Scott and um, what's his face? Uh, little, little guy from Compton. Kendrick. And uh, – and I posted like the Travis Scott came out on this fire, this winged bird with the spitting fire, and I posted a, a small little video of it on my thing, and it had fifty thousand views. Because <laughs> 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 I tagged, you know, I tagged Travis Scott and whatever, and it was like next thing you know, I was like, like, can this be right? So I mean, the power they, you know, they're very powerful people, so I can understand. Okay, musically, what do you think about Kendrick? I think he's great. You know, I think I, I, I think he's one of the you know one of the better ones for sure. I think he's. It's emotional. It's you know. I think it's his aspirational. I think he wants to take. I think whatever is a white guy, but I think he wants to take his people somewhere. You know, like he's definitely of that. You know, I think he's a leader, right. which is which is great. I think. You know, sorry, Kanye. I think Kanye's a clown. I think Kendrick is a real leader. You know. 
Okay, let's go back to one of your peaks. Not that you don't have peaks coming in the future, but you produced the first two Black Crows album, okay? And the first one was a gigantic hit. How did you end up producing that? Um, that was – that's a good story. So I was working with, with Rick at Def Jam. Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin. And he made this movie called Tougher Than Leather. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you well, seen it? Tougher well, Than Leather starring Run DMC? No, no. I didn't see it. So it's a bad. It's like a really. It's like a black exploitation film, right? You know, it's low budget. And this black exploitation, black, exactly black exploitation. Um, low budget. He's in it. He stars. He wrote. Star. He stars and directs it. Well, actually, you know, there's this Rick Rubin series on Showtime, right. and they show part of that movie with Rick in it. Oh, the, I know he's embarrassed by it, but uh, you know, it's completely racist, but in the best way. You know, it's over the top. Everybody, no one's spared. It's like, a, it's like it was like the era of early Howard Stern. It's a, Makes fun of Jews, makes fun of blacks, makes fun of Chinese people, Asians. Everybody, no one's spared. Everybody's equally insulted. But I remember him telling me he sat next to David. He played for David. He screened for David Geffen because he wanted. He was looking for distribution, and Geffen's like, "You can't put this movie out." <laughs> He's like, "What do you mean?" He goes, "The way you talk about the Jews and this one, there's only one line about Jewish people in the whole thing. Like, there's only one cut, and that's the only thing he saw." And Rick was like, "He's saying how proud he is." I think he's embarrassed. I maybe. I, we'll have to all watch the documentary inside right. the, the genius mind of Rick Rubin to figure out if uh, if he is embarrassed by that. So he's making this movie. He kind of was pulling away from Russell. He didn't really want to Russell make Simmons. Simmons. Sorry, Russell Simmons. He um, moved to L.A., moved to the, into the Mondrian, didn't come back, and never went back to New York. So I took a job at A&M for a year because Steve Robowski signed the Def Jam deal to Columbia and now he was the head of A&M. Right, A&R and A&M. A&R and A&M. So he hired me like a low, you know, like a director of a and whatever it was. I went out and saw, you know, went to try to see a couple bands. Um, and then I was in Atlanta. They sent me to Atlanta to see a band called Bareback, I think it was. And they were kind of like a southern boogie band. And I thought they were just going to be playing in town with So I, I was online at a Kentucky, literally at a Kentucky Fried Chicken at the Marriott Hotel where I was staying. <laughs> <clears throat> and the kid in front of me had long hair. I'm like, hey, are there any other bands in this town? He's like, well, this band called Mr. Crow's Garden are pretty good. They're playing tonight at the Peacock or somewhere, whatever it was. I'm like, okay, cool. I'll check it out after these guys. I found that this band is playing about 40 minutes outside of town at like some dive bar. I take a cab out there. The manager is also the lyric writer. Hands me a loose leaf book with lyrics. I'm like, what's this? He's like, there's no lyrics, man. I'm like, okay. you know. And then I'm sitting in the back of this club. And the band's playing. He's literally singing the songs to me in my ear. I'm like, I got to get out of here. And he's like, okay, we got the second set. Come on, meet the band. Like, so meet the band. He's like, yeah, I'm going to stay for the second set. It's great. I get back in the cab. I travel back into Atlanta, which is like a half hour or whatever. I get to the club, and they're over. They're like, hey, what happened to Mr. Crow's Garden? Oh, they, they, they finished. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And I was living in New York at the time. I get back to New York, and I look in the voice, and they were playing in New York the next week. So I just happened to go. And... um and they were good. I mean, I, he was a presence. You know, Chris was great. He was Chris a great, Robinson. Yeah, Chris Robinson, great. He's, a, you know, he's a he was a front man. He had it back then. He had the moves. You know, he had the whole thing. And his brother was kind of handsome and like would like mysterious. You know, he's also he was just this young guy. And uh, I watched their set, and it was kind of like ding, ding, ding. Everything was like very up, 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 up. And at the end, they played "Down on the Streets" by Iggy and the Stooges, and they played "No More, No More" by Aerosmith. Love that. Right. Love "No More, No so, More." Yeah, "No More." I'm like. Like well, that's an odd. Baby, yeah. I'm a dreamer. Oh, I'm like, okay, so 
I met them. I said, hey, that's great. I said, let me ask you something. I said, you played this whole set, and the last two songs you played had nothing to do with the other stuff. I'm like, what gives? And they're like, well, we're the most popular band in Atlanta right now. We play a lot of colleges and stuff like that, and this is what our audience is like. But we like this. I'm like, oh, interesting. Okay, so we stayed in touch, exchanged numbers, no email back then. And then I remember Mench, Peter Mench, our mutual friend, took me to see to Monsters of Rock in Dallas. And I had gotten this uh, cassette. <laughs> really Dating ourselves. Yeah, I know, really. I had a cassette and I had a uh, Sony Walkman with the extra bass, boom bass on it. And I was listening to the Faces record, um, Nod's As Good As A Wink. And I said, well, this yeah, that's a terrible record except for the hit. That's not true. Miss Judy's Farm? Like, no, no, compared to the second album and the first album. Uh, Miss Judy's Farm. Okay. It's pretty good. And also, uh, I thought that the, you know, I was a huge Rod Stewart fan. Right. I was just, I mean, I bought that album. Right. I still own it, but whatever. So you're a huge so, fan of that record. I'm, so I'm listening to it. And I'm like, well, this is interesting. I'm, I'm going to play this for Chris Robinson. So I call him up. Like, hey, what are you doing? Hey, man, I'm down in Texas, blah, 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 whatever. I'm, I'm going to play something. So I played in Miss Judy's Farm, the song you don't like. Right. Well, as I say, certainly that album had the right sound. <laughs> right. I just didn't think the material was right. as good. The songs are right. Yeah, maybe on the B. So I put I put the ear, you know, the earphone to the speaker. You know, it's playing, whatever. I hear, hello? Hello? I'm like, oh, right. what's up? You're like, um, you send me that record? I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. So I sent him a copy. And then we kept in touch. And then, like, a couple months later, he's like, hey. Well, so that was not the sound you saw heard in New York? No. Okay. So um, a couple months later. So a couple maybe a couple months later, I, I, he's like, hey, you should come down. We got a bunch of new songs. Um, come down and see us. So I went down. I was like, oh, this is, this is kind of rock now. And then we made a demo at A&M. And I was like, I wanted to sign them. And I was like, well, can we do a development deal? Because like, they were doing these development deals. They're like, oh, they're kind of tricky to get out of, you know, whatever. So they were kind of hemming and hawing. I'm like, oh, well, that, that's not fun. And then Rick called me. He's like, hey, I'm not moving back to New York. I'm staying in California. Come out. I'm going to start a new company. It's going to be more rock-based. Just get get out here. I'm like, all right. Like, Is there anything you want to do? I said, well, I found a big – he's do whatever you want. I don't care. You know, just come out here. So I moved out here. It's my 30th year, 89. And then I told we signed the band, and it took about a, a year to get the songs going, like back and forth. I go there a couple times. They, we send cassettes back and forth, and then I went down there, and then we made the record in uh, around this time in '89, like around in the summer, sometime in the summer in '89. And it came out first week of uh, what, January in 1990. It's supposed to be 30 years, which is insane. It's 30 okay, years. did you know it was going to be such a monster? I knew it was the best week. We, we had to, you know, we had to offer, and that, there was there was them at that age, and we had one guitar. Every, every <laughs> I think every hour, every song starts with the one guitar on the left speaker, right? Because that's all we knew how to do at that point. And then I think the best thing was getting Chuck Lavelle to come down and play. Right. He was Keyboard for the, player. For the he tours with the Stones. We was in the Allman Brothers and everything, and that really took it to another level. And I was like, well, it's good, you know. I said, I, I, I you know, if it does hundred thousand copies, they can make it. We can make another one, and they can tour and get an opening slot or something like that. And I think it just was, sometimes it just, you know, who knows? Better be lucky than good, I always okay. say. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. 
a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun, such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. But hard to handle. Whose idea was to do that? That was, I think that's Chris's, you know, Robin. He's like, I said, we should do something, you know, and then my idea was to make it like walk this way. <laughs> right, right, it, right, basically, right. Just basically rip off walk this way and then just turn it, you know, but I think it, I was like, we should do some Otis song. Or we should just, you know, because we listen to a lot of stuff. Like, so we picked that one. Okay. Did you make a good amount of money from that record? <laughs> Bob, I worked with Rick Rubin. How much money do you think I made? <laughs> Okay, let's go back to the. Maybe they have those things. Uh, he looks like a catalytic converter. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I get the joke about the catalytic converter. Well, don't they tamp down emissions? Right, right, right. Yeah, they tamp down what you can make, you know, like, or whatever. He's like, or a governor, what do they call those things? Like, like some cars, like, they were like renter cars that had the thing called a like governor back in the day. They would right. let you go over 65 or something like that. Uh, no, I, I did okay. Look, I did fine, you know. She'll ever get paid on it? What? Oh, yeah, I did. Of course I did. Yeah. No, be today. No, I don't think so. I mean, he's—I don't know. Every now and then, a check shows up. He's moved the—he's moved the label four times. So who knows? You know. Okay, let's start from the beginning. Where where was you born? You know, from the Cheech and Chong song. What's that? Do you know that Cheech and yeah. Chong song? I exit forty three in Long Island is where I grew up. But With, you know, I grew up in Connecticut. I'm not right. super Long Island South. Syosset, it's North Shore. Syosset. Yeah. Okay. I mean, my, so my I was growing. Well, let's see. Um, I was born in Valley Stream, and then we moved to Syosset when I was young. My dad, Greek immigrant, came over when he was 15, didn't speak any language, married my mom when he was 18. Or maybe, oh, she was – it's funny. We had our 50th anniversary. We did the math. Like, wait a minute. You were 17? My mom was 17 <laughs> when she got married, Like, but she turned 18 like shortly after. So he was – I think he was 20 maybe or – he was like 19. 
and they got married. Their children, you know, getting married might have an older brother that's four years old, four years older. Um, and just the two of you. Just the two of us. So okay. So your mother, she Greek? Oh yeah. Oh really? So I mean, he she met her born through, there, but he met yeah. her through the network. He met yeah exactly. Okay. He met her through through church or whatever. You know somehow they knew a friend and. Um, it's funny. This is, I mean, I find it interesting. Some people don't don't follow me when I say this, but it's very. It's both my grandfathers were born in America at the turn of the century, and taken back to Greece as infants. That and, makes no sense. And no one knew why. And I, my dad's dad died when he was like three. He never really knew him. And my uh, mom's dad, I always ask him, Papu is Greek for for, for grandfather. I'm like Papu, what happened? He goes. I was a baby. No one told me why. How do I don't want to know. You know like, and he has no. No one has any memory of why they were. He was. He, he was. He was born in Michigan, and my other grandfather was born like in Massachusetts. And then they went back, which is strange. Maybe they came and they didn't. Is find that what they a wanted. Greek thing that people went back? Not really. It's so odd. You know, it's very odd. So my dad technically wasn't. I guess he was born an American citizen. So he didn't go through Ellis Island, but he came over on a boat at fifteen oh. in the in the fort in the you know in the forties, late fifties, whatever. Okay. Do you have a heavy Greek association personally? Uh, yeah, I mean it's kind of it's ingrained into you when you're a kid. You know, it's it's um, it's, it's interesting. It's it's very much about the church, and it's not necessarily religion. It's just the church is like a social center, right? You know, and that's what it is. And, you know, and and my dad was a diner owner, of course, because we're Greek. So we have a, you have a whole network of diner owners, and and those are your friends and. You know, my, I don't think my parents had many other out. You know, until maybe we had the neighbors of Ferraris. They were Italians. So I was okay, but outside of like, they didn't have many friends who weren't Greek. You know what I mean? It was like not just by whatever. Okay. Other than having these roots, are there anything you do today uh, that is Greek associated? Just eat. My mom sends me spinach pie on dry <laughs> ice, and I and I it's fun. And I, I get a lot of mileage out of that. Um, this my secret man camp where I go. Um, Bob Weir came by. We had dinner, and I gave him a piece of the spinach pie. And he's like, "I said, oh Bob, you got to try this. My mom made it. And he's eating it now. You know, if you've seen Bob lately, he has like he looks like a muppet. Right. He's got that giant. He's like, and he's eating, you know what spinach pie is? Very flaky. And right. He's got a flake of phyllo dough all over his mouth. He's like, did your mother really make this? <laughs> I'm like, yes, Bob. He's like, it's quite delicious. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, well, you know what you're tasting, Bob. He's like, no. I said. It's love. <laughs> so, so, you know, that's that's her thing. I mean, that's why I'm so fat. Uh, because she just wants to, they just force food on you. They come out twice a year and my refrigerator becomes, you know, like there's only a limit to how much we can fit in here, mom. Oh, I'll make room. I'll make room. And they still just want to feed me. Is so I remember um, we were having Christmas dinner a while back, like 20 years ago. He's like, yeah, and they were talking, you know, having talking. And then, yeah, Peter stopped eating. And Peter's my brother. Like, Peter stopped eating. What did you guys do? <laughs> And my mom's like, we took the plate, we took his plate, we put it in front of you, you ate all the food, you were happy. You know, like, I was three. How do I know? I'm like, yeah, there's stuff in my, you know, so that's probably why. That's the most Greek thing about me is probably food and guilt. Now, your wife is not Greek. No. She's what you call Xeni. This means non-Greek or like Goyim, I guess would be right, the right, Jewish right, thing. Right, right, And I remember we got married, married 20 years, and um, <laughs> so we'd been together for like nine before that. And, I, and she said, you know, we should probably get married. I'm like, Sounds good. I said, I want a big church wedding. And she's like, shut up. You know, she knows me. I don't want to. I said, no, I, I want a big church wedding. She's like, I don't understand. I said, not for me, but if we don't get married in the Greek church, your life is not going to be, you know, you, you, my mother will make you miserable. And you, she will live the day. You'll regret it. So we go down to the, have you been to St. Sophia's? It's great. They do a, a 
Greek festival, which is the best thing. Have you ever been to a Greek festival? No, no. Well, I've been to a Greek. Fe- well, I've been to a Greek festival. Where's Saint Sophia? It's kind of like Normandy and uh, Pico. Okay. And there's a place called Papa Christo's across the street. You've been there? It's like a Greek restaurant, and they do been there. oils and feta cheese. It's great. And it's the end of the summer. You should go. It's it's a good festival. So we go down there and um, talking to the priest and telling him, you know, whatever. And my wife's Roman Catholic, at least, and she's bad. Have you been baptized? Like, yeah, she's been baptized. He's like, and he tries to upsell her right away. He's like, right. Have you thought about the Greek religion? And it's blah, 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 blah. And my wife's great aunt is Elizabeth Seaton. So this is Greek Orthodox. This is Greek Orthodox. Which is basically- it's funny because the right next to me in high school, Spiro had the uh, Irish guy. <laughs> he had the locker, and his father right. was the priest at the Are Greek they- Orthodox Church. Well, that's what's nice is that it's. So it, when they broke off, I can't remember what the rules were. But it's it's pretty much similar, except there's two like the two main differences are priests can marry, which means it's you're much more normal. You right, know, you can be much more normal. Um, the archbishop isn't for, the archbishop is the first among equals. They say so. It's not like he's the only one who God talks to. It's like if anything happens, we all look to him. He'll tell, he'll take us all on the you know like so, which is I think is a nice sentiment. And there's something to do with the Jewish calendar. We can't have Easter till after Passover because I guess Passover was the last the last supper was a Passover dinner, but um. So he's like trying to upsell her, and my great uh, her great aunt is Elizabeth Seaton. You know who that is? Seaton Hall University. Yeah, sure. She's the in first. New Jersey. Of, she's the first. Did they just change the name? The guy who gave all the money. I don't think so. I think no, that's the one further down New no. Jersey. Okay, she's I know the Seton new, Hall. But Sister Mary Elizabeth Seaton was the first American canonized saint. So I'm like, oh, her great aunt's Mary Elizabeth Seaton. You know, he's like, oh, we'll table it. She can get married here. It's fine. <laughs> you want like you know mess with that? So that's let's, my let's stop for one second. Yeah. You went Greek Orthodox. Are you a believer? I don't know. Okay. So you – Okay, no, I'm not going to push I mean, that. I, do you, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what – I don't know what's going to happen, you know? Okay. So you do get buried in the Greek Orthodox Church. Just to make – so we, we I come home. There's this thing called Stephana, which is they put these – have you been to Greek weddings? First no. of all, they're three hours long. But they put these crowns on your head and they go back and forth. Everything's three times, three times, three times. And Stefan has these these two crowns that they marry you with. Um, as we call my mom in the car, I'm like, okay, we just bought some stuff. She, oh, I said we're getting married next week, but no one's coming. I don't care as long as you're getting married at church. Makes no difference to me. And that was the end of it, you know. So, so they didn't even come out for the wedding. They didn't come out for the wedding. We just got, it was uh, my brother was on his way to Nagano for some reason for the Winter Olympics. Okay, and her sister was in Texas, and you just need you need. Someone to stand up for you. Right. So it was just the four of us on a Thursday afternoon, you know, getting married in the morning. Well, in the morning. It was empty when we left. So what does your brother do? He's in advertising. He was uh, – so I, I feel bad. So uh, you have kids? Have you have brothers? Uh, no, I have two sisters. Two sisters. So he's older. And then my dad went from uh, restaurant supply to – I mean, this is, all, this is just for me and you. But he went from restaurant supplies to restaurant – I mean, owning a restaurant to a restaurant supply business. Right. And – my mom's brother was his partner, and then my mom's brother had a midlife crisis. He wanted to go to law school at age forty or whatever. It was. Right. And he thought, well, we'll just sell the business. And you know, my dad, my dad was still a young man. He's like, I, I'm not going to retire. What am I going to do? So, my brother got kind of he just finished college. He got suckered into it, and he got trapped in a family business. And while that was happening, is when I was out moving in California. I was sending everybody TVs. I had you know platinum records and like you know and. And I felt bad. He got like stuck at the thing. So he's he's an advertiser. He worked with Donnie Deutsch for a long time. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, he set up uh, like a company with this, this like urban um, D Rush, this urban Donnie Deutsch thing, and then. Well, how did it know? end with the family business? Eventually, uh, my dad retired. 
And so they, my, bro- my brother came in for about, he was stuck there about 10 years. And then, you know, and then my dad just kind of got rid of it. But was there any money when he sold it? Yeah, yeah it was fine. Okay. They're good. They had the condo in Florida. We still have the building. <laughs> they had the condo in Florida with all the other Greek owners in, in Fort Lauderdale. They still have the house I grew up in in Syosset. You know, so they're, they're snowbirds, they call it. Okay. So your father owned a diner till you were how old? Uh, teenager, maybe just about 12, 13. And then he had this restaurant supply. Okay, yeah. How close was the diner to your house? Uh, five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Did your mother work in the diner? Yep. My mom worked. So how much were you in the diner? I was, I was just to peel potatoes. I'd, they put me in the back, uh, I'd turn over a big, like, 50-gallon cauldron and give me a stack of potatoes. I'd sit there and peel potatoes. Uh, my dad was like, you know, and it, he he left the house at 4.30 in the morning. It was a weird – we'd always have dinners with family because breakfast and lunch was really – in the diner, it, was, it wasn't like a 24-hour kind of vibe. It was more like a – it's right next to the train station. So it was a lot of breakfast, a lot of lunch. And then my dad would come home. We'd have dinner as a family. My mom would go and close up, and and then my dad would fall. We we watched Cortrovetti's father, and he'd fall asleep in the Lazy Boy, and I'd have to wake him up, and, tell, and then it all started over again. If we went out like on a Sunday night uh, to like a church dance, we'd go to the diner. He'd open it up and start making the muffins, you know, at midnight, whatever. And he sometimes he didn't sleep there. It was like you know, it's like, it's a I don't know, it's a blood business. You know, it's a real oh restaurant business yeah. in general, but. Would be the type of thing that you kind of own the place. You'd go and say, "Hey, you know, I want a cheeseburger." Well, my mom had no idea how to shop for you know forever because she took everything out of the walk-in from the thing, and you know we'd have to stay. You know, it's, <laughs> come home. Another thing, like I come home from school. Hey, how's it going? Good. You know, I come home with Tim, whatever. My friend. We're going to do band practice in the basement, whatever. You guys hungry? Nah, we're all right. Have something small. All right, I'll make you some steaks. You know, <laughs> so it's like you know, it didn't. You know, we had a deep fryer in our house. I mean. <laughs> Like, you know, so it was that kind of thing. Oh, okay. So let's turn to music. Were yes. you a m- big music fan from growing up? Yeah, I loved it. You know, but, um, it's funny. Uh, I think I told you, I've met all Beatles. I met all four Beatles. I'll tell you that story, right? No. Oh, so uh, George, Paul, and Ringo I met later, you know, once I was out here. But I met John as a kid at Walt Disney World. And again, I was young. It was like 71, I want to say, right when they were breaking up. I think it's it's documented somewhere. That's, that's when they, <laughs> How do you meet John Lennon at Disney World? At the Polynesian Hotel, at the buffet, of course. <laughs> what was he doing there? He was there with, with uh, Julian. <laughs> he was there with Julian. I think, I think, I'm pretty sure it was Yoko. Some people think maybe it's May Pang. I can't. I have to do the research again. But that's where he was. That's where he signed his disillusion papers for the Beatles. Okay. But um, so my brother, like I said, my brother's four years older than me. And I knew the Beatles kind of from the cartoons. And I liked the music and whatever. But uh, I'm online, and all of a sudden he's he's on you know he's, I'm on top of me. Oh, hey, hey. And he's like, oh sausages. Like every time every time I put something on my plate, he was like he's like pancake. I'm like, <laughs> and the accent it was just it was all too much. Like I didn't never met a British person, you know. I was, right. I was seventy one. I was like five, maybe four. I was four, maybe four or five, whatever. I'm like oh this guy who he is, whatever. Okay, maybe it was a little seven. Like, okay, and he's like oh. Potatoes, potatoes, potatoes. Like, like, I'm like, yeah, potatoes, you know. And I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I've always been a fat kid. So I get back to the table, and we're sitting, like, one table over from them. And my parents aren't as freaked out because they were working. It didn't really, you know, it wasn't, like, as much of them. And my brother grabs me, like, what were you saying to you? What were you saying to you? And I'm like, I don't know. I just started <laughs> crying at the table. Like, I lost my shit at the table. and just, I was crying and, like. What do you say? What do you say? Like, leave your brother alone. What do you say? Like, who is that guy? Like, my my dad's like, who is this guy? You know, like, and so then they had this man-made lagoon 
where you do these like power right. boats. Right. And I was with my dad in the power boat, and all of a sudden Landon comes like, "Hey, sausages!" And my dad's like, "Who's your friend? What is this guy?" <laughs> so that was funny, but. Music. Uh, well, that's what I gotta ask. If you remember, four years old, could he walk? Seven years old. I think uh, seventy-one. I think I was six or seven. Okay. Could he walk around freely? Yeah, it was like it was. I I don't know. I, was, you know, I guess he was. I, right. was like, who knows? But I, mean, I don't think he had anybody with him. But I think my mom would get these um, like Dick Clark records, right? And it, they had like twenty, like twenty. 50s tracks aside, and I would listen right. to those constantly. Earth Angels was a she used to sing Earth Angels to me. Then I got like really into Simon and Garfunkel when I was like a like Cecilia was a big one for me, and I just loved it. And then I started playing drums. My my brother got a drum set for Christmas. Of course, I want to play drums. He but he was you know 14 and I was uh, uh, 10, and uh, so he started lessons. I started lessons. I started getting pretty good. And then I'm 11, 12, I'm like an 11, 12 year old, and no one wants to play with me in the right. junior high band because I'm, I'm still in grade school. So that Christmas, I'm like, I, I want a bass guitar. I had no idea what it was. But I, was, I want a bass guitar because I knew every band had a bass player. And so they got me a bass player for, I think, about sixth or seventh grade that Christmas. And by January, I was in four bands because they were like, oh, you play bass? You got to be in our band, man. You know, so that's, and then I turned over to bass and then I never looked back. You know? No, no. Did you take piano lessons as a kid? No. I, took, I just took, uh, Drum lessons and, and bass lessons, basically. I'm, I'm not that. Mu- I mean, I can fake it pretty good. I can pick out the notes. I, I can I can read a little bit, but I'm not. I'm not a highly skilled musician. So when you're in high school, you're playing in bands. Playing, yeah, playing a couple of bands. We played Max's when I was 16. Max's Kansas City. Yeah, yeah. What what kind of music were you playing? We were a silly pop band. It was, it was kind of crazy. We played at Biker Night at Max's, and they loved it. They, they thought we were cute. You know, we kind. Of, you ever been to Max's back sure. then? So they made those long tables, right? Like those. My, my, our lead singer kind of walked out <laughs> the table. We had like songs like Daydreamer, Dreamer, like really these little kids, and like they, they got a kick out of it. Played Max's, Beverly Lounge in the city, my father's place, and old. Remember my father in Roslyn? We played a bunch of in places. In Roslyn, right? Yeah, under like <laughs> this the ads all the, the time. place called Uncle Sam's, also right. in Roslyn. It was a competing place. So we played a bunch of these places when we were still young, very young. We were, I mean, we were okay. We had one guy who was <laughs> Phil Bono, sweet guy. His dad was, um, uh, in charge, he had a air freight company at the airport. If he, I mean, that's all I need. <laughs> okay, we roll hey, with how it. Are you? Oh, yeah. Oh, hey, hey. Uh, he was in, and he was in summer camp for most of Phil's childhood. He was away at summer camp, um, and he kind of funded everything. Like we got, we had great gear. We we had a truck. We had like lighting things. So we were very, we were very pro. That's pretty serious. Yeah. And was there a dream? We all thought we were gonna, you know, let's do it. And he was. He was the songwriter, and I, I kind of—that's really where I started. Like he was the songwriter, I kind of would arrange it and say, "Look, we can't just be playing the same four songs, four chords all the time. We got to do something different." And this is uh, Petty became really influential to me. Like the Dan the Torpedoes record came out, and I was like, I really studied that. And like, we need a bridge. We need to say something interesting. We need this. So I'd start arranging these songs, and that's what became—that's what led me to be want to be, you know, production. Okay, so you're in the high school. You graduated from high school, and then what? Go to NYU, which is okay, but why NYU? <laughs> well, it's a good story. <laughs> Again, I might be boring you, but so I applied to NYU because I had this music business program, which was kind of amorphous and weird. It wasn't the Clive Davis school; it was a it was a dual major you can do. It was music and business. Uh, I applied to UCLA because I wanted to go to California. Right, that's right, where, of you know, what it was. It's a dream, and you, know, you live on the East Coast. Right. Boston University because it was a it was a music right. college town at the time. And uh, I think Syracuse, my brother, went there. 
And then in the in the spring, when everybody finds out where they're going, right? It's like, oh, I got into this, I got into this. I go to see my guidance counselor, Mr. McMahon. I said, Hey, Mr. McMahon, what's happening? He goes, He goes, Oh, I didn't send anything. You think I didn't send anything out? Where do you want to go? I said, Well, uh, at this point, I guess NYU. You know, I've gone. You know, I've been going to the city and playing the city. He's like, Okay, you go to NYU. Uh, we'll go to the Chinese restaurant. Bring your mother. We'll talk about it. it gets this weird. is public school. This right? is public school. This is gets this gets weird. I go to his office. He goes, all right, we go. We get in his Dodge Dart, late model Dodge Dart, no license plate. I'm like, Mr. McMahon, he goes, he goes, don't worry. They know who I am. You know who I am, right, George? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you're Mr. McMahon, my guidance counselor. But you know, right? I'm like, okay. Goes through a stop sign. He's like, they saw me. Don't worry about it. Then starts telling me the story of falling down, no bru- Like, I'm kind of following it. I'm, following it. I'm like, okay. He goes, because you know who I am, right? He's Jesus. He thinks he's Jesus. We get to the restaurant. I'm, um, we're in the parking lot. Ma'am, I see someone with a baby. Can I see the baby? You have nothing but happiness and joy with this baby. Is that blah, blah, blah. See, George, they knew who I am. I'm white and freaking out. My mom's already at this Chinese restaurant called Moore's, which was a great Chinese restaurant in the Woodbury Commons. We sit down. Sophie, your son is this, blah, 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 blah. He starts, he starts giving a sermon, basically. He has a glass of wine. He's like, oh, you know, I like to do this. This is my blood. And I was like, oh, he's such a good boy. You know, we're going to get him down with you. Sophie, I promise we can get him down with you. George, tell your mother you, you, you honor and respect. Like, okay, great. I don't eat anything. Mom's eating the whole time. I take my food to go. We get in the car. And my mom's like, well, you, you were very hungry. What happened? I go, I wasn't hungry. I said, did you hear what that guy was saying? <laughs> oh, he's out of his mind. But we're going to NYU. You heard him say that. We're going to NYU. A week later, he gets committed. We got into NYU somehow. I have no idea. It's to this day, it's a mystery because I wanted to do like a short film about it. I think it's like a really interesting film about the guidance council who thinks he's Jesus and you get into NYU. He gets committed. We get into NYU and then the rest of the session. There's another funny story when we get to NYU. But just, it's funny, like you said, if this was today, I'd be in therapy. Right. We'd probably own the land that Syosset School District was on. You know, they'd be, we'd have a huge settlement. Right. You know what I mean? Be like, and I call my mother. She's like, I don't know, but he got us into NYU. So I guess we got to NYU. Then I get to NYU and I see this guy, Professor Broderick. This is September, you know, late early September, dog days of New York City. He's got a blue blazer. He's like a jazz hipster. He looks like Mr. Burns kind of with gray hair. Tall, like 6'4". Like, hi, Professor Broderick, George Cooley's first year, you know, this music business program. He runs it. What should I take? He looks at me. He opens like a steel case desk, takes out a, a tall boy and a brown paperback. <laughs> this is how long has it been sitting there? So it's piss warm. Opens up, takes this few sips. He goes... Hey man, I don't know where your head's at. Take whatever turns you on. So I'm like, this is great. This is the best school in the world. So for two years, I took like film class, like some biology for like for med student. Like I just picked these things. He gets retired somehow. They call me to the, to the dean's office, Mr. Cullis. What have you been doing here for two years? I'm like, hey man, take what turns me on. Like, well, you have like three credits towards this weird major that doesn't really exist, and this and that. It was like through the. So they put me back on track, but I didn't. I went four years, but I didn't graduate. And I want my degree. I've, I've, <laughs> now that it's the Clive Davis School of whatever, I should. Oh, okay, wait. Well, give theoretically, if you were to go back, how much school they say you short? I think probably about a year and a half or something like that. Um, it's funny. Uh, I had someone look it up, and they were like, "Like, oh, yeah, man, no problem." They're like, oh man, I think you got like a year and a half. It's just too much, and this and that. So I haven't really. And by the time, to be honest, my third year of school, I was already working. You know, we stopped really going to class. We'd be in the studio four or five in the morning. And, you know, so by senior year, I was really not going at all. So I I don't blame them. It's not like. Okay. 
So you're in there. You're in this program. When do you meet your compatriots? Um, I went out with a, uh, a girl that Rick dated, Ruben, and then he was the social committee chairman, which meant they gave him a couple hundred bucks every three months to throw a party, and he'd get as much cheap grain alcohol you can get, and it, get like a DJ, like a hip hop DJ or somebody to come down. And this was how long after you were going to NYU? This is my junior year. Okay. This is this is my junior year. And then, um, yeah, so he'd throw these parties, and I just started helping him, you know, DJ, helping him DJ and carrying crates, whatever. And then he— Wait, wait, but he was hiring a DJ. He wasn't DJ. He was DJ. He was, D, oh, okay. he was, he was DJ, DJ Double R. Okay. He was, <laughs> he was the DJ. And then he would have—but then we have guest people. You know, you have guest people come and scratch, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So I'd help with the crates and talent, whatever. And then— So what year are we in? 85, maybe? Okay. 84? Maybe okay. 84. Probably okay. 84, because I started at 82, so probably 84. And um, and then he put out this record called It's Yours. Well, a little bit slower. You're coming, you have a nexus with him. Mm-hmm. At the time he's throwing these parties, he's also starting to put out records? He's made one record that he, that, that he with this guy called Tila Rock and this DJ called Jazzy J. Right. Called It's Yours. It hadn't been out yet. And it went out, it went out that summer. It was one of those things you heard everywhere. It wasn't on the radio. You know, it was like you heard every car, every every boombox. You know, you'd well, hear let's be clear. Is that every because, club. you know, if that, things don't happen by themselves, was Rick working it that hard? No, it, it was it was a natural, it was, it was a very natural, it was a zeitgeist of hip-hop at that moment. Okay. It was a great beat. The, the, this guy, Teela Rock, had an amazing voice, um, interesting lyrics, you know. It was just, it just took hold. It was it's magical. It's right. one of those things that there's no, you know, no one's working it really. It, he had it. So that's what the, that was the first Def Jam release, but Def Jam wasn't really a label yet. It was the Def Jam release through Party Time, which was Morris Levy. <laughs> so never so, got paid on that. Exactly. He never got paid. And then he met Rick. Uh, Russell thought that it was a, thought Rick was a black person. So he went, he's like, I'm going to meet this guy, Rick Rubin. They met each other. Now, and Russell was doing what now? Russell was managing Run DMC and produce, he was a producer also, and he was managing them, and he was, uh, he's Run's, you know, he's Run's brother. So Okay, but he's not going to NYU. No. Okay. He lives at Lafrac City. He's older than us. He okay. lives at Lafrac City. He's a couple years older. Uh, I think he went to Queens College, but dropped out. Um, they started a label, and the first official release was, um, I think it was LL Cool J. Um so that's when I kind of went full time. So I took it internship. A little bit slower. You're dating his ex girlfriend. You're helping him with the the uh, social parties. How do you become all of a sudden invested in all this shit? Yeah, it's all about the hang, Bob. Half well, of that's it, my basket, but not everybody knows. Some people can do it. Some people cool. can't. You, know, you just got to be cool. You got to be. You know. You got to be. You got to be easy person to be around, and you got to have. You got to have input. And plus, you'd have, you had to say it was a set of hands back then. Um, everything was there's no computers, so everything was manual. So if you listen to these old records, these these first eight Def Jam records are basically just a drum machine, a guy yelling, and some scratching. There's right. not, not much more music involved than that. But if you wanted, if you wanted, if you just wanted the hi hat to play, you have physically mute everything else. So you needed hands on the deck. So everything was like everything was manual. Right. Yeah, it's hard to explain, but it was a. No. It took a couple of people to work the desk because, all right, here comes the break. Mute the kick drum. Who's on kick drum? You're on kick drum. You know who's on scrap. You know that kind of thing. So you'd have to, and then you'd edit pieces together, and so it was, it was a more, 
uh, kind of like that. And then the studio, and I knew music, you know, so that was like another thing. And, you know, that's it just became, you just started running around with them. You started running around with the, Beastie, the Beasties and stuff like that and just go to the studio and help. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Were you a hip hop fan? I, was, I loved soul music. I loved old black music, the blues, stuff right. like that. So through that, you know, that was like the new, that was the newest black music, you know? So you were a fan of the music. Yeah, the stuff we were doing and the stuff. Okay, so now out. they start Def Jam and you're, in, you're an official employee? What? I'm an, int- I'm, I'm, a, I'm getting a, I'm getting college credit. I'm not getting, I think I'm not getting paid. Of course not. But I have about three or four jobs. I was the college radio promo guy. <laughs> I was uh, – I did sales. 
and I answered the phones and stuff like that. When you know, it was basically it was Rick's it was Rick's uh, dorm room. So and I had different people. I also made different people to be those things. So when I was calling up, I can't remember the names, but I had a, I had a <laughs> you're like Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm John John. What's his fake yeah, name? Yeah, John uh, Burnham, yeah, whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so I would call, and then I would also be responsible for getting for shipping labels. So you'd make this. this uh, let's give you the quick story. So you go to the studio, which this, this is another thing that was. I think I might have told you the story, but it was very. You knew kind of right away where the record was working. You'd go to the studio, make a record. You cut an acetate. Go to this guy. Um, Who's the guy? Boom, not Boom Boom Gardner. We had a guy in New York. Oh, Herbie, Herbie Powers, maybe? This guy, you, you get an acetate, smell like a bowling ball, which is great. You just sit there and smell it all day. You go to the Roxy, two in the morning, three in the morning, and ask the guy to play. You go to the, up to the DJ booth, say, can you play this for us? He put it on. He's like, all right, wait around. You'd wait around. He put it on. You're sitting up on top. You're looking down at the dance floor. Record comes on, and you watch. And if people walked off or weren't interested, you knew this is not ready. This is not a record we should put out. People like looked up to the DJ booth and went, "What's you know?" Because also the thing with hip hop is all about the new, which was interesting, which is fun. This is really not what my personality is, but it's also about the newest record, the newest thing, the freshest, the fly. You know, that was like it was very much, and not knowing what was coming next. So like, you play a record, they look up, give you the you know like give you like put your hands in the air, kind of like, people get excited, you're like all right, this record's ready to go, let's press it. So, Whose money were you using? It's all Rick. Rick's dad was the baby shoe king of Long Island. <laughs> Total, you know. Uh, South Shore, you know, new money kind of thing. Not that there's anything wrong, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. It's like, um, so from that point, okay, we're going to make this thing. We had these labels. Labels were printed in Brooklyn, but the pressing plant was in Jersey. So I'd go to Brooklyn on the subway, get two boxes of 5,000 labels, whatever it is, 5,000 labels, take them to Port Authority, put them on a bus to New Jersey, and they'd go to the plant. And then the plant would send to test pressings back, and I go back to the port authority, wait for the wait for the union bus to come in, take that, and then I would take it down. We'd give it to DJs and stuff like that. And then we had a, we had an official distributor in New York who was like, because indies they didn't pay you till you put the next record out, right? So there was a there's a there's a place, fuck, what's it called? So we had one official place in Long Island City that would handle all the stuff, and they would they would order directly from the plant once we once the record was out. But then we'd get two boxes and sell it on the sly to this woman, uh, Pearl, on like 11th Avenue in the 40s, and she would buy it for cash, and she would just get cash. And my job was to go drop them off there and get the cash. But back then, it was all tranny hookers, that area. It wasn't like as hip as it is now. And so <laughs> I'd take a subway there, whatever. I'd walk over with these two boxes, and I'd, then I had like $500 money. I'd put it down my pants, and I'd treat myself to a cab to get home. <laughs> so that was the beginning. So that was the first eight records. They were these 12 inches. And then uh, Steve Wabowski signed Def Jam as a label. So who signed Jeff Jam as a Steve Wabowski. Oh, Steve Wabowski at A&M. Okay. <clears throat> he signed Def Jam as a label to Columbia. And then they start, They kind of took over the stuff from then. The first album was the Yellow Cool J record, Radio, which, uh, again, like, uh, you kind of know. So... I'm coming out from Black Rock. I've got a bunch of cassettes now, and I'm walking down the street. I'm on Fifth Avenue. I see these two kids who are carrying a boombox that's twice their size. You're about Black Rock, the CBS building. Yeah, Black Rock, the CBS building. And these two kids are, like, sharing a boombox, this giant radio, and the cover of the LL Cool J radio, which yeah. is basically the radio. 
And so I see these two guys, and they listen to something, whatever. I don't know what it is. I'm like, I'm like, hey. I hand, they look at me. Uh, first, they think I'm weird. I'm like, hand them a cassette. It's LL Cool J. So they look at it. They see the radio. They look back up at me like, Are you, what's happening here exactly? They looked at the thing, took out that cassette, put this cassette in, shut it. And the, I think Rock the Bells is the first track. LL Cool J is hard as Better let me the hit play. They both looked down at the radio. They looked up at me, put the radio on their shoulder, then they were happy. So, <laughs> and I remember I went back down. I went back to the dorm room like, L's going to blow up. They're like, why do you say that? I said, I just gave these two kids. They couldn't be like, they were like 12, 14, and they just put it on their, I said, they, it was the happiest I've ever seen. And at this point, Robotsky was at Columbia. So he was that's at Columbia, why, right. right. He was a director or vice right. president, vice president, whatever the, whatever the titles at Columbia. So that was the that was the first album, the first Def Jam album, and there was I think it's the first rap record to go gold, maybe first album to go gold. Okay, then what came after? Uh, and it was the Beastie Twelve Inch, which was pretty fun, and then the Beastie's album. Okay, how did the Beastie? Weren't the Beastie's on tour with Madonna before that album came it a, out? It was a single. They had, they had done these two singles, um, and she took them. It, it, I had to say to her credit, you know, we'd see her around, and she was cool. You know, she took them, and she was ha- even when they wanted to get. <laughs> I mean, he's uh, MCA was the greatest. Uh, you know, uh, Yalk. I remember they would they would practice their routine. They practice their routines at, the, at our dorm in the basement. But I remember I went to see a show. It's like you know I've been all around the world. And this is Madonna. This is like a virgin. So right. every, every girl's thirteen, fourteen in the audience. He's like, I've been around all. The, I've been around this motherfucker. I can tell you right now, there's no pussy like Boston pussy. Like, <laughs> and the kids are horrified and crying. <laughs> Like you know, like get these people. Like, it's so many complaints, but she kept them. And it, uh, the best was the end of the tour was at the Garden, and I went out and got a bunch of super soakers. And during her set, they ran on in their underwear and, and, and they hosed her down. With and that was like a big, that was a big event. Okay, do you have any idea License to Ill was going to be so gigantic? Again, I think we just make them. You know, I, I, me, you know, I was peripherally involved, and I sang. I think I sang on it, maybe played something, but it was like. I think it was so happy. We were just making ourselves happy. Like, they were so good. Was, was, I'm trying to explain to it. It's it such a, like, they were like princes of the city, you know, and somehow just by being in the court, you were like this thing. Like, everything was open to you. Everybody wanted to talk to you. you people come downtown. That's when downtown started coming to these things. And, you know, I remember Lauren Hutton tried to pick me up at some club one time, you know, and I was 100 pounds lighter and a lot cuter. But, you know, and it was just a moment. It was like a very magical moment. They could do no wrong. You know, they were anointed for whatever reason. It was still, it wasn't worldwide, but you just felt good about it. But you had no idea it was going to, I don't think you never know. You know, you don't think it's going to be that crazy. Okay. Did you read this? Did you read the book, their book? I haven't read it yet. I've, I've skimmed it. The book seems it's, amazing. It's amazing. Get it on tape because they, they tell a lot of the stories and they have. Yeah, you know, I was with my nephew last night. He has the book and the tape. Yeah, I listened. It's funny. I took a trip to Vegas, but I never drove to Vegas. I'm like, I'm going I'm to specifically go to Vegas so I can buy this book, listen to it. And it, you'll hear it. It was a magical time. And those, I mean, they, they really were blown up into a crazy world. It didn't affect me as much, but. Okay, so what else were you working on there at Death Just Jam? Th- I mean, that we then then we had like some R and B stuff that didn't really. Russell started like doing some R and B things. We had one that recorded Orange Juice Jones, The Rain. I oh, yeah. saw you and him. Um, and then it kind of and then it just kind of got weird. Like you know, the Beasties they they weren't gonna make a second. You know, Rick and they started to have their thing. Rick got funny with the money, as they like to say, and just Rick made the movie. It just kind of fell apart. You know. Okay, so it fell apart. That's when you go to work at A and M. Yeah, 
and they go to Capitol. They go to Capitol. They move out here. They right, but they name check you on the record. Yes. Are, you in, are you involved at all? No, just, you know, what rhymes with orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so going back to the story, you're at A&M. Now you moved to California. I moved to California. I, and, I, I moved to California in 89. Okay, suddenly it was Death American and it was all rock instead of hip-hop. Right, the first was um, Slayer. Right. I think it was Slayer and then the Crows, a band called Wolfsbane maybe. Yeah, it was much more rock. There was no okay, more well, what does that have to say about, you know, Ru- Rick? He, he was, I think he was really enamored with L.A. He loved it. We, we came out. He'd been out here before, like for business or something. And then we came out in 86 to do this um, soundtrack to um, – t- not tough. Um, what's it called? The one of Andrew McCarthy and, and Downey, Brett Easton Ellis book, Less Than Zero. Right. So we camped out for about a, six weeks at the Mondrian. And we made a bunch of records during the course of that. And then I think he was really enamored with it. I think also he was making Slayer, he was making Danzig. He started making, he started really, this really was from Long Island, more of a rock kind of guy. I think he started making those records and the scene here was incredible. I don't know, when did you, you were here, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, walking up and down Sunset, right. handing out flyers. It was, inc- I mean, it was incredible. I think he just loved it. You know, he had a porno actress for a girlfriend. You know, it was just, he was just loving it. He loved the California lifestyle. He loved driving. It, I think it reminded him of, um, Long Island, which is what this is, really. It's, right, it's like, right. You know, it's like, That's why I say yeah. it's a giant suburb. Yeah, it's just a suburb. It's like Sunset Boulevard is like Sunrise Highway right. in Long Island. It's the same difference. It's just many more, whatever. You keep going, and then you hit little neighborhoods. Um, so I think he was just enamored with it. And hearing KNSC was happening, so getting to hear the records he was making yeah. on the radio. Hard Rock Station out yeah, of Long Beach. Out of Long Beach. So I think he was, he was just completely enamored with it. He loved it. Okay, so you come out here in 89 to help him with the label. How do you suddenly become a producer? Well, you know, I, I was working on the records back in the day. You know, I was working on the records with them. I would always go to the studio. Um, and I hung a sh- you know, you want to be something, you just call yourself that, huh? <laughs> okay. Right. So when you were out here with Rick in 89, how many people were working for Deaf American? Uh, just me and Rick. Okay. Know? And then it became, then I think he hired, we distributed through Geffen. Right. And they hired Mark DiDia. You know Mark yeah, DiDia? Yeah, I know. Mark, I think Mark DiDia was the first hiring. Right. And then maybe another guy from uh, a guy who used to work at KNAC to help with the radio stuff. And that was like, I had an office. Um, across, we had an office across from Geffen. There's a pizza place on top of Corey Street. Right. That was our office. So I had an office there. Rick never came into the office. And um, he basically worked out of the house. So there may be three, two, three people for a long time. Then it kind of grew a while. Then it got, started getting bigger. as more. So how long did you work with Rick? Um, I don't know, but- 12 years, 13 years probably. So, so how did it end? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's over. I guess it's, I mean, I think he just keeps, he kept moving the label. I think he kind of got less, he started becoming more of a superstar producer. Right. Know, I, it's, and it, I don't blame him. You know, it's much more fun to make a record with Platinum Max and, and Mick Jagger and things like that. You know, and I think kind of the label stuff wasn't as important to him. And I think he just kept, kept, kept moving it. It kept getting smaller and smaller. And then you, were you doing your own things, or are you yeah, wake I, up, wake I, up one day and say, "Holy shit, there's no company left." No, I was doing other stuff. I was like, um, I'd started working on movies. Zoolander, I think, was the first movie we worked on, which is two thousand, two thousand one. Um, I did a few, rec- I did a couple records with other people. Um, 
you know, it's just okay. So, of the records you produced, mm-hmm. what are some of the acts you produced other than the Crows? Uh, Jayhawk signed them to the label. Right. A band called the Freewheelers signed to the label. Uh, the record with Maria McKee. Um, uh, Girl Tiff Merritt, you know who she is? Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, then a bunch of English bands, this band called Reef, that never really happened. You have Primal Scream. Right. Um, Kula Shaker. Um, my favorite is this guy, Dan Penn, you know who he is? Of course. Did a record in 93 or 4 at Muscle Shoals with the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. Right. And they were probably in the, my age. I thought they were old men, you know, they were probably in their early 50s at the time. And that was probably, that's that's that was one of the things that, was one of the best experiences and one of the worst experiences that it kind of ruined me. You know what I mean? It was like, wow, these guys are great. Right. And then I, I do this record for two weeks down in Muscle Shoals with these guys who were like amazing. They listen to each other. They, you know, they, and then I go back. So who to, was it? Was Barry Beckett, David Hood? What it was it? Hood and uh, Roger. Roger, right. Uh, um, uh, Jimmy Johnson, guitar. Right. Reggie Young. Right. Spooner, who was amazing. Spooner Oldham. Yeah, that was like the core group. Uh, and then we cut Do Right Woman, which was one of the most amazing songs ever. We had 11 people playing live at one time. So we had like, he, Dan was playing acoustic guitar and singing, had two guitar players, had the bass drums, had a grand piano, electric piano, and an organ, all at one thing. <laughs> and it's, a, it's, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's the slowest, funkiest, even though it's dead slow, it, it's just still a groove there. It's a, you can hear the air, and it's like, and it's the only, it's the only time I cry. I, I'm talking about it now. I might cry again. It's the only time I cried at work, and I had to leave the room. I was like, "This is just too much." Because it was like these guys all came up together. They were telling me the stories. They're like they were teenagers. They didn't know. They didn't know where a world existed. They're making this greatest music in the world. Wilson Pickett, Rita Franklin, and they all come back together to serve this guy Dan, who was kind of like the arbiter of cool. He was the James Dean. He's the first guy to have a song recorded by another round. Conway Twitter, he recorded like a song. He was just like, he's so badass. And he was, he's the greatest. I, just, I love him. If you ever get a chance to meet him, he's wonderful. But um, would, it, would they give you any respect? Yeah. It's funny because um, so I get down there and uh, I got Joe McEwen. Do you know Joe McEwen? Sure. He, so Joe McEwen sends me down. He's working at Sire at the time. He signs Dan. He goes, I'm going to sign Dan. We're going to do, you know, do this one off. We go meet him. He lives in Nashville. I'm like, happy to. I go to Nashville. I go, meet Dan. How you doing? Great. I just finished the second Crows record. We do a little bit of like, little dance kind of. He has these great Altex voice of the theater speakers in his basement. Yeah, <laughs> really? Yeah. Incredible. He's like, he's like, well, uh, he plays me what he's been doing. He plays me some demos. Yeah, I don't know. I'm Mackie. I got a Mac. Like, everybody's like, it's so funny down there. Everybody wants to just keep moving forward, you know, even though you know, whatever's the easiest thing. So he played me a couple of cuts. I'm like, oh, these are good. I said, you know, they go, well, yeah, yeah, I got to play Okay. He goes, what have you been doing? So I played him. I just finished the second Crows record. I played him a couple of songs and I play him, um, what's the one? My Devil, My Angel, Thorn on My Side. That's the best song on right. the record. So I play him that because I like, right, this is a good sounding. At least right, I know you're probably yeah. I'm like, all right, good. You're like, My Devil, My Angel, what the hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I don't know. He goes, he goes, he goes that's. I play him some other stuff. He goes, that's probably the best cut you play me, but I just don't know. This is ugly music, man. Like, I played him, like, uh, Remedies. Like, this is just ugly music. What else you got? And I finished the first Jayhawks record. I played him this song called Crowded in the Wings, which is like a soul ballad. Like, crank. You know, it's like, it's got the thing, beautiful melody, beautiful story about it, you know. Crowded in the wing. Crowded in the wing. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> 
I'm like, well, a guy who's been standing on the side of the stage all his life, you know, waiting to get it shot. Yeah, I guess, but I don't understand. This crowd in the wing. Like, he just kind of, like, this is going nowhere. He's got a 57 Chevy Nomad station wagon. I'm like, how are we going to work on that, Dan? Oh, about 15 years now, it's nothing's happening. You can tell. I'm like, all right, we have a nice time. I go, Dan, it's going to be great. Your record's going to be great. Um, so thanks for seeing me. I can't, I can't imagine what this has been a thrill. Um, I'm really excited to go to Muscle Shoals tomorrow, and I'm like, I'll see you. I'll see you. I'll see you down the road sometime. He goes, what, what do you mean you're going to Muscle Shoals? I said, Dan, I don't get to this part of the world very often. If I'm three hours from Muscle Shoals, I'm going. Right. You know, I'm going. He goes, all right. And did you ever read Goralik's book, Sweet Soul Music? No. It's a must. But there's a whole Muscle Shoals thing. He goes, all right. I'll tell you what. You come here. You drive. I, but we take my Cadillac. We'll go to Muscle Shoals together. I'm like, sounds good to me, Bob. So it's like basically, like, it's like. Uh, Chico and the man, we're going to go take this road trip. You know, it's like we're going to go green. I didn't see Green Book, but I imagine like Green Book. So I got him next to me, and I start pumping him from information, even though I know the answers. I'm like, so how did you write this one? And he's like telling me the story. I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, and by the time we hit the gas station to, for the first refill, we stop in. He gets an RC Cola and peanuts. He hands it to me. He puts the peanuts in the coal. I'm like, don't you know anything about peanuts and coal? Cola? He goes, this is going to have a treat sensation. We're drinking Coca Cola and peanuts, and he's telling me the stories. We pull into Florence, which it's Florence, Muscle Shoals, and Sheffield. We pull into the first town, and there was a on the main drag. There was a drugstore, which where they used to write all the songs. This guy docks somebody or whatever. I'm like, oh, is that the drugstore? He's like, yeah, that's the drugstore. I wrote more songs than that. I want to know. We're doing this, and we finally get to we get to Fame, right? Fame Studios. Studios. And Dan, what are you doing here? How's it going? Oh well, you know, thinking about maybe cutting a record. Like, who's your friend? Oh, it's George Rakalakis, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know that black, he's got that black crow thing. Oh, yeah, good record. Yeah, he goes, yeah. He goes, so you're going to cut here? He's like, ah, we haven't decided yet. You know, like he's acted all cool again. Then we right. go to Muscle Soul Sound, same thing. We drive back. Then I start asking. Then after I could start, uh, he tells me about the, the echo chamber. He starts telling me about, we, then, you know, we're inside baseball. So, you know, I'm getting all the information. I drop him off his house. I said, Dan, this is the greatest day of my life. Thank you so much. <laughs> I can go, you know, I, nothing else happens to me now. I've lived it. Good luck with the record. It's going to be great. He's like, well, George, if you can get down there on April, you know, we're going to start April 27th, and if you can get down there, we'll do the record, you know. So I said, hell, of course I'm going to be there. We did the record like in two weeks. Everything was pretty much live. He, was, he wanted to do all the vocals again, but it just didn't work. He, like, he'd, he, everybody wanted to please him so bad right. they all were playing to him. We cut the record pretty fast. We mixed it. And... um and then he, how I knew he respected me is that he mastered it in Nashville. And he's like, George, I think I might have made a mistake. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I'm going to send it to you. He sent him the record, and like it was all squished. And like, you have to hear it. I think you'll like it. It's called Do Right. It's very open. There's a lot of dynamics. So it's a, it's a very interesting, it's an old per, it's not a young person's record, you know. I said, yeah, I think they sucked the life out of the record there, uh, Dan. He goes, I said, why don't you come out here? We'll do it out here. So he drove, <laughs> he drove out here. We cut it here, and then it was, you know, he was, he was happy. And I remember Reed saying that he was just, he felt that he could perform. He knew that everything was going to be taken care of in the control room. That's how, like, I was, I was able to ease his mind. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to tell them kind of what the player had to play. I, I tried to in the beginning. We were cutting something. I'm like, okay, great. So listen, why don't you, uh, if he catches that thing, and blah, blah, he's like, George, we're going to give you what you want. You just got to let him learn the song a minute. Give him a minute. I'm like, all right, cool, cool, cool. And there's this engineer called Johnny Sandlin, who was the so drummer. Of he was the drummer in The uh, Hourglass, which right. became the Allman Brothers. And he's he's almost twice the size of me, drinking 
he has a mason jar full of Diet Pepsi. He's drinking that all day. And so we cut one thing, and, and David made a mistake on the basis. I'm, like, I'm talking to him, okay, cool. All right, second thing. And he's sitting next to me. I go, all right, great. So we're going to do the second chorus on the turnaround, in and out, okay? And then boop, ba, ba, do, down, back in, stay in, and then out for the thing. Okay, cool. Let's do it. I turn, you know, he goes, hear this. Uh, I'm sorry, George. I really wasn't paying attention. What was that you were saying? <laughs> <laughs> this is the first day. And I'm like, I'm like, look, man, I'm from New York. I eat fast. I fuck fast. I do it all fast, you know? Like, so I'm like, I got to slow it down. So I just kind of, I had to like take the heat off. And then I was also a younger kid. You know, I was like, so, and then once I just kind of let it happen, you know, there was a couple of happy accidents. There's, it was just great. And like I said, and then I mean, we cut, like we cut through, right? I had to leave the thing. I came back in. I'm like, well, what do you think of that one? I said, you guys can play that all day and I'll sit here and listen to it. You know, so one was better than the other. It was like a matter of just like catching. And the other thing was like kind of also, hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Nice to meet you. He's got like a Schecter guitar and a Roland chord, like these kind of 80s and things. Like, and then I see this old kid. I'm like, what's in that? I go, oh, that's my Gretsch. That's how I played all the I'm like, I said, does it tune up? He goes, yeah. I said, should we try to use it? He goes, well, I could try. You know, and like, so like getting into the kind of like get back to the more, you know, what, more organic for whatever reason, you know, kind of thing, or the more old school kind of things, getting the telecaster out, getting the fender amps out. You know, that, that was like the first day of kind of like pushing in that direction. And then it was just, just was easy. Now, did Dan like the final product? Loved it. You know, I think he really enjoyed it. But ultimately, the record didn't. It wasn't, it wasn't supposed to. It wasn't right. supposed to be a, I think it was supposed to be like a cachet thing, and he was supposed to get out there. And he you know, he went out and played some shows. He, he goes, him and Spooner play every now and then. If you have a, you should catch it. They do like a two man thing. And and then a project like that, how much does it cost to make? I mean, maybe the whole thing was like fifty grand at a time. Maybe, oh, really? Maybe, low. but I don't know what they paid him. I don't. I don't even know what I got paid to be honest. You know. And you worked with Tom Petty. Work with Tom. So Rick got hired to do Tom's record. Well, we didn't get hired. They were talking about it. It was, it was the development stage, and he owed a record to he owed a greatest hits and a new song to Universal, which may be in the fire or not. Who knows? But I think they kept all their tapes in a different place. But he's like, I have to go see Tom Petty. He's, you got to come with me, kind of a thing. Because I don't think he was. I think he was a little bit scared to be Tom Petty. It's funny. <laughs> uh, so Rick, um, he's like, I really love Full Moon Fever. And I'm like. You know, Tom has six, seven records before for me right. with his band, The Heartbreakers. He goes, I don't care. Like, well, I think you should listen to him. I'm not going to listen to him. He, I mean, again, knew nothing of Tom's work. He's like, I love, he loved Full Moon Fever. Uh, we played that endlessly in the car, constantly. I like Full Moon Fever. I bet Tom likes Full Moon Fever, too. So, like, I don't know, man. You better, you better listen to some other stuff. So he took me out to the Valley to see Tom. We go to his house, and he was just the coolest. I mean, from, from the, you ever meet him? Spending time with him? No. The greatest from the get go, and um, you know I was I was kind of took a little while to, but then you know I was kind of a I've always been a little bit of a wise at, and he loved it. You know he's, he had a great sense of humor, and he was so generous. So yeah, I work with. Whoa, whoa, whoa! So Rick's going in. How do you end up doing the record? Well, Rick, I, I wanted to do a record a couple down a couple records down the road. Rick goes in, and I just, I'm I'm basically I'm his Ed McMahon. I'm with him right. the whole time. You know, they go to, every time they go to the studio. I'm there. You know, um, there's a song called "Girl on LSD" that I make that I kind of for, I kind of nudge him into writing. Like he started this thing. I'm like, oh, you should let's finish that one. Keep going, keep going. Um, and so I'm just around. You know, and then when they start, they, they, they make the live thing, the greatest hits, whatever that kind of. And they start. It's going to be a solo record. 
and they do most of it at Mike Campbell's house. They cut a couple of things at, at cello or whatever. Um, and then I got, like, I was doing another record for a minute, so I had to, like, or I was working on something else, so I'd get there a little later. And they started always putting, and the song Wildflowers on Wildflowers. Every time I'd pull in, that was what would be up. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Why are you guys always, like, and they were kind of punking me. Like, they would just do it because so, they knew I was like, why isn't this one finished? This is done. Like, you know, they're like, well, maybe we should add, you know. And I would, right. You know, I'd be out there playing a click clock thing or I'd play something on it, you know. But um, so then, yeah, so I stayed close with Tom and uh, and then he called because they did this box set. Have you seen that box set? I have it, yeah. Yeah. So he called me. He's like, we got to do this thing, to, to, you know, doing this box set. We go through my archives and finish what's not, you know, finish a few things, clean up a few things. And that's when I really bonded with him. And then um, he was just – I think they made another record. And he was just sitting around and Tony, his manager, Dimitri, right. I was like, go go out and see Tom. Like, what's going on? He goes, he should be making a record. I'm like, okay. He's like, well, just go out and see Tom. He kept telling me. So I would go out to Malibu and visit with him. And then uh, he played me – like, what have you been doing? And, uh, he's got a couple of songs. Like, play me this one. And he played me the last DJ of the song. I'm like, oh, that's great. And you're going to record it? He goes, yeah, I'll get to it, whatever. I said, well – and I was obsessed with Full Moon Fever as well. I was like, how did you do those things with Jeff? I remember you tell me, and Mike was there. Like, he's like, well, we would do, two guys would play the guitar, then we'd switch guitars, we'd move around, then we'd stack them. And like, well, why don't we try doing that with this one? And then that's, that was, we were off and running. That's what it became. Them teaching me how they made the record became making the record. Okay, so then how do you switch more to movies? Um, so being out here... I'm, all my friends are directors mostly now. Bands break up. You know what it's like. One guy wants to be a chef. This guy, you know, this band breaks up. They hate each other. And Ben Stiller, who I knew just from being, in, you know, out here in L.A., he's like, I'm making this movie. You should do the music. I'm like, what does that even mean? He goes, I, you'll figure it out. I'm like, all right. So I just, he hired me to do the music for this movie, Zoolander. I had no idea what I was doing. And it was a comedy. I want to make it funny. And we put some song. He loved it. We had a great time. I mean, the first thing, they had this. Do you remember Zoolander? They have a, the walk-off. Yeah. And so they're in editorial, and I send them Beat It by Michael Jackson because it's funny and it's, you know, it's reference, whatever. And everybody's like, this is great. So great. Thanks. This is great. Keep going. You know, whatever. And I get a call from the studio. Did you give them Beat It? I'm like, yeah, why? He goes, do you know what Jackson's going to cost? I go, no idea. Why? Is it going to be expensive? He's like, well, you can't have blah, blah, blah. I said, is it funny? You know, I'm like, well, then it's worth X amount. Whatever it is, if it's funny, it's funny. You know, it's it's worth it, right? And like, I'm like, well, if you think it's a problem, maybe you guys, you know, maybe I'll tell Ben you guys think it's, oh, no. No. You know, it's like, no, it's fine. It's fine. Just don't do it again. And then they, the next thing I did was like, was uh, call me. Like, you know, <laughs> I just kept putting stuff in that I thought would make us laugh and have fun, you know. And that was, that was the beginning of it. And I've worked on all his movies since. Okay. Yeah. So... <clears throat> What's your week look like these days? I, I who knows, you know. Right, like right now, I'm working on a Nike commercial, and it's changed directions eight times. You know, I've been in the studio working on pieces, this, and it's a minute spot, and who knows what's going to be. Um, um, I'm working on a couple of TV shows that are interesting. It's a little remote because they're shooting in Canada. A lot of it's done in post, so I'll start seeing it. Excuse me, I've seen a few episodes. So I'll get up, have breakfast, and we'll just wait for the phone calls, you know, or, or start making calls or whatever it is. Okay. So if you're working on a Nike commercial, what exactly are you doing? Creating the music for this spot. Okay. So they're not licensing something? No. 
So you're creating it from scratch. Yeah. How do you do that? Um, well, it's it, again, this thing's. Uh, this is kind of boring, but it, it became. It was supposed to be one thing, and it turned to another. It was supposed to be a, a girl drummer playing live, and this guy called the V Diggs, who is. Um, so the okay, so the video has people playing in it. That was the idea. They're going to shoot. Okay. They're going to shoot this girl drummer and this guy. Kind of, it's going to be a conversation between the drums and the and the vocalist, and with with clips from sports. It's a Fourth of July spot, and then it just kept changing into like, all right, we're going to use her, but we're not. We're going to do it live, but we're not going to do it live. But we, want, we, we do want music. We just don't want a drum beat. They're like, well, we'll just do a break beat and we'll do some. So it's just, they, re, they really put you through the. <laughs> okay, although they have money. Yeah. That's one thing, unlike right. music. Oh, yeah, but still, bands. but they don't want to pay. And nobody wants to pay anything. That's the other thing. It's like, it's so funny. As I'm not complaining, but I make much less on a movie now than I did when I first started. Um, and nobody wants to pay for anything. And what happened was, in order to get these movies made, this is the first thing they do. They slice the music budget, and then it's like, well, we'll figure it out. And then you get to the part where you're supposed to figure it out. It's like, well, we want Led Zeppelin. Well, guess what? You 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 threw that away when you you know kind of a thing. So it's that's the one thing that's, that's the one thing that's a kind of a drag is talking about like talking about money. It's boring. It's just boring. It's like we want this, but we can't afford it. Every every conversation I get is, hey man, can you work on this thing? We really don't have any money. It's like that's that's every com- no matter what it is. Come make my record. I don't have any money. Do this. I don't have any money. So it's just. What do you think accounts for that? I think people don't value music at the end of the day. I think it's been devalued. Well, let's say you're, you're working on a movie. They just figure they can get it from somewhere else or something else is good or what? Uh, it depends. That's why I like to work with a, with good people. Like a Ben. Right. Eventually, if you stand your ground, you'll get what you, you know. Right. You'll get what you want. And that's not to say that I haven't worked on small movies with but we still wind up getting it. We get the other people to capitulate. You know, we, we say, "Hey, this is a special kind of movie, and everybody's doing it for this." You know, so that's what we have. You know, so it's just different levels of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you say, okay, you wake up, you're receiving phone calls, you're making phone calls. Are you working it? Working it? I'm looking for gigs. No, I don't really do that. Okay, so let's say your phone call. Let's just say the Nike commercial. So you get a certain number of calls from that. Will your other calls be about the Nike commercial, or are there certain people you check in with on a regular basis? Uh, my friends, people I know, right. you know like people that I'm in music or film, people I'll talk, you know, talk every day. But uh, like this editing, there's this a movie being finished now, this Joker movie that Todd Phillips directed. Uh, I'll go to the, I'll go after this. I'll probably uh, go to the sound. St- they started mixing, so I'll go and listen to what they're doing and check and you, in on that. But you didn't work on it. Yeah, I did. Oh, you did work yeah, on it. It's been a long. It's been in progress. You know, it's we're now at the end. So right, the stuff has been the score has been recorded, the music's been picked. Uh, it's just a matter of mixing it for the final. For you know, they do it in reels. You know, they mix a reel. Right, time. right. So I'll go check that out. Um, I just got another episode of the TV show. I'll watch that and see what's in there, what they need. Um, uh, Noah, I did another Noah Baumbach movie. We're doing a soundtrack. We're doing a forty-five. Love those Noah Baumbach movies. Are you, you, you got divorced once, right? Yes. Oh, you'll love this one. <laughs> the new one is it's brutal. I'm I'm not divorced, and I had to leave the room. It was like it's incredible. It's really this new one's great. Um, so we're doing a record for that. We're also doing a, ahead of it. We're doing a forty-five vinyl like special. Randy Newman did the score. That was amazing. Working with Randy Newman. Um, so I'll make a call about that. I just got the mastering from that. I'll check in on the artwork. Um, what so, else? You know. Well, let me ask you. To what degree are you busy with work in a regular week? 
it's always something, you know. Okay. It, well, I'm trying to say it's 7 o'clock at night, 8 o'clock at night. Are you parking yourself in front of HBO or are you still no, working? I'm watching uh, The Eleventh Hour with Brian Williams having dinner in my underwear out of a bowl probably. I don't go as mad as much. That's for sure. And um, and just I'll be I'll, – maybe I'll listen to some music after if I've had the time. Okay. Are you – not going out as much because there's not as much to hear or because you think it's a function of uh, your age and where you are? A little of both, I think. I mean, how much is – I don't know if there's much of a scene right now. No, I don't think there is either, but, you I, know? you know, I discuss this with a lot of people. Okay, so you're heavily into the political thing. It's, it's, it's weird. It's kind of ruined my life. This whole tr- – I mean, I don't know if it's uh, supposed to talk I, about Totally. It's, 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 it's You know, impressive. I just remember like uh, just after Trump got elected, I was with, you know, people who run the live business. They didn't want to talk about music. They mm-hmm. wanted to talk about politics. It's, it's like I don't even care about politics. It's just, like, it's just, it's just so – whatever. He's terrible. I don't know. Maybe everybody knows. I'm sure all your listeners think he's terrible. Right. So we're not – again, but it's just – it's this thing you can't turn away from. It's worse than a car wreck. You know, it's funny. I went I – went, I made a record in England during the election. I specifically wanted to be out of the country. I voted early. I was out. I went to bed over there. Hillary Clinton's ahead. Great. No problem. I get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. I'm like, let's get a check in. You know, it's like four in the morning now and five in the morning there. And I see it. I'm like, this is not good. You know, I was like, oh, God. And I'm like, well, how bad could it be? And it's worse than I think anybody thought. And you wake up every morning, it's like, what did this asshole say? Oh, God. And now you're addicted to it. And I don't know if it's making me feel better or worse, but like, but I do love, I love Nicole Wallace. <laughs> I love Chris Matthews, you know, and I love Brian. Those are probably the three shows I watch uh, or list, I'll listen to. The so car. you don't watch Rachel? No, it's too, it's exhausting. I don't, it's too exhausting. I don't know what the hell she's talking about. It takes too long for her to get to the point, you know? I love, I love all the reporters. It's like, it's so funny. I love all the reporters now. Love Ashley Parker, like a big crush. Uh, <laughs> Uh, KCDC, you know, what's a case? All the, I just, it's okay. Do you check out the competition? I'll watch Fox for a few minutes and then I'm just like, I feel like you're taking crazy pills. You know what I mean? It's just, I've, Hanny's evil. I think it just doesn't like, and I start thinking, like, well, maybe am I wrong? I'm like, no, I'm not. No, no, no. I I wax away. I check in on the satellite, you know, on Sirius, you can listen to all those stations on a regular basis. Is there any hope for music impacting the political scene? Don't think so. Then why not? I just don't think people are going to rally behind the song the way they used to do. You know? Do you? I mean, if no, I don't. But I have many different. You know, when we went through the Iraq War, uh, music had a chance. I think the main problem now, which people, this is you know, there's a lot of stuff in the entertainment business that people in it don't want to admit. Hmm. Okay, it's like if you look at the chart, they say how big this first came up to me with Randy Phillips was running AEG mm-hmm. and he was going on about Jay-Z, uh, you know, New York state of mind. You know, and I said, that doesn't mean shit in right. L.A. You know, they're not even playing it. So now you have the I don't want to even judge these records, right. but the biggest records, they don't have the mind share right. of the 60s or the MTV era. So unless and the type of music they're making is not universal. I mean, this is what I find fascinating. The last album wasn't that good, but the only person with universality was Adele. Right. OK, but no one else is making those records. No. It's I like mean, this is a big lane. Why did somebody else go there? No, she'd be on. um you know, she'd be on uh, Dick Cavett, and she'd right. be on those kind of shows. She'd be on a variety. If we had variety shows, she'd be right. like, you know, be one of those things. And everybody was, your mother would see it, your grandmother would see it, you'd see it. It's, I think there's the the part of everything being just poured out now. There's no focus, you know, so it's hard to break through, I guess. This is it. 
your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. To what degree are you watching, other than for work, to what degree are you watching television or movies? It's all the HBO stuff, Game of Thrones, you know, the um, Euphoria, not really. Uh, love Saul, got Better Call Saul. Right. Fast. I love it. It's a I slow think burn. I, like, I would rather watch Better Call Saul than Breaking Bad. I, it's a slower burn. It's like a real weird, it's like a weird energy and anything <laughs> exactly. that happens. And Mike's great. I mean, all the char- all the peripheral people are really interesting. Um yeah, I'm watching some TV. You know, not my wife likes Maisel. I haven't really sat down with that. First season was better, but there's an episode in the uh, the Catskills in the second that's, that's just good. fantastic. Um, uh, you know, we have every channel. We have HBO, right, right. We have Netflix. But just to be clear, because I I used to believe. I remember I was reading the LA Times once, and it was some you know Live Aid or something. Right. And the critic there said, "I don't have that channel." So yeah, you know, this is your business. Right. Yeah. So I made a big deal about always having every channel, and you know, so you have the Amazon, you have everything. Someone says Hulu, 
Okay. I had a free subscription to watch a show, whatever, but it's almost like an insult. It's right. not the $10 a month, but it's like, you know, it's like, one more being, thing. it's like being pecked <laughs> to death by ducks. I don't have Spotify. I have a family plan. I think the I think the iPhone thing, the uh, Apple, whatever it is, Apple Music. I think it's terrible. The interface is just okay. Just a little. bit. Why do you think Apple Music is terrible? I just don't understand. Do I own this? Am I listening to it? Am I looking for it? Is it a radio? I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you this know, is this what bugs me. This it, is where they so. left Steve. I mean, I have all the services, right. and the interesting thing about Amazon is two things. One, you can use Alexa on your phone, mm-hmm. and two, they say they create the playlist on the fly. However, I don't find there are too many revelations mm-hmm. there. Deezer I like for the high quality, okay? I don't know that one. Deezer? Deezer Elite. They keep changing the high quality name, but it's HQ. If you have Tidal, they're using that new, uh, you know, what is it? The new uh, high-level MQA. What are you listening on? Depends, okay? So I have these really good Gentilex that they sent me. But I got the big rig there, too, that I can run via Sonos. I think you're you're listening at home. Well, if I'm listening at home, if I'm listening, I go do a lot of hiking, mm-hmm. okay, at night, and I'm listening on my uh, – Are you the night stalk? <laughs> well, I don't want to give anything away because now I'll be killed. Right. But where I normally hike, right. the about 15 years ago, we were running – we knew the ranger said, any, ever any crime here? And he goes, just boyfriend and girlfriend once. Right. And where I am, listen, every occasion, it's really weird because occasionally when it's really fucking hot, like over 100 degrees, I've had a couple experiences where the homeless people start, are, start climbing Fine. up and cool they're off. on the trail and it's yeah. like, this is weird. Okay. <laughs> but but that's when I listen. And you know, headphones? Lo- what headphones? Okay. I listen to Sennheisers. Right. No Beats. Worse. Never going to listen to Beats. <laughs> I had a pair of Bluetooth Sennheisers that ultimately the magnets went out. And I just threw them away. I had them for like six years. But the Bluetooth sound is just not as good. Yeah. I heard these um, ribbon headphones someone's making. Okay. That's for the home though. Yeah. I mean for the home, I got – they just updated them. But I have the Sennheiser HD 800s, which, you know, they said were the best. I've got some Odysseys, which have a unique sound. I got two pairs of those. I think those are great. It's weird. I mean what I listen to, it's – I mean I have – I got an NAD system. I got some J- old JBL studio monitors. Well, you know, I have an NAD integrated. I got the old JBLs yeah. too, but I got another set of speakers. And I, got, and I have an S10s just because right. keep it honest. But what I listen to most, I have this like audio engine Bluetooth player. Right. And I just, you know, I just psh, 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 right? take oh. a little uh, take a little JBL flip, whatever. It's just it's odd, you know, because I don't want to. Listen, I try not to listen on the computer. At least listen it off the computer. But most people just okay. On the I almost bought those audio engines. How are they? Cool. It looks cool. It sounds good. It's good. It's, it sounds pretty solid. You know how 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 expensive are the ones you got? Hundred bucks. I don't know. So it was a gift, I think. And then uh, I'll just you know I'll be in the shower, turn it on, whatever. And then I, I like I like the convenience of this. I think. I don't think people know what a good record sounds like anymore. Oh, so he's I think, pointing to the phone for my phone. Sorry, the phone. Yeah. But I don't think people know what a good record really sounds like anymore. It doesn't. I don't think it's a matters. I don't think it's. You wouldn't know. And if you did, if you had a really good record, like say Dan Penn record, if you listen to Dan Penn record at home, right, and you're a teenager, you you keep reaching for the volume button and down. You're like, wait, it's loud because it, it has dynamics. You know, nothing really. And where are you on the vinyl thing? Uh, I got a bunch of it. I never listened to it, to be honest. You know, I got it. I got all my vinyl. 
And I got a couple of turntables that are right there. I rarely listen to it. But the reason you're bringing it, you know, I don't, I think unless you were cutting analog, it makes no sense to right. me. But if it was an analog original master, right. but I remember ACDC, the original CD, which was pretty good. And the second CD on Epic, really good. Mm. And I got a lot of power, you right. know, you can't turn it up halfway. Yeah. And if you keep cranking the CD, your ears bleed. But you crank the vinyl. You can feel yeah. it like the show. But I mean, I'm real. I think it's like uh, the whole vinyl thing is like uh, Civil War reenactment. I don't get mm. it whatsoever. Well, they said CDs are back. Did you see that? They said cassettes are back. It's like really crazy because, uh, you know, I've gotten rid of a, you know, I had, you know, what, 10,000 of these CDs. A lot of them were, you know, CD singles that never made it. Right. But I have probably two or 3,000 CDs left. Yeah, I just stare in my garage. Just, yeah. I'm, so, do you, I mean, the vinyl's worth something. The CDs, you keep owning them or you just throw them away? I just hold on to them, you know? I, I, I haven't bought one in a long time. But I think that's also why I'm not as connected. It sounds but not as it's not as important to me, these new things that come down the pike, because I don't really have the same relationship. You know, I'm not holding it in my hand. I'm not reading about it. I'm not I'm – not, Imagine well, the like, difference was when we had to buy it, and I don't want to, you know, the future is here. It's right. like those oh, guys yeah, in Nashville, is that you couldn't afford everything. Right. And if you bought it, you played it to death. Right. That's true. Whereas now, you know, I'll hear something and he goes, oh, you know, that's kind of good. But unless it's revelatory, I'm on to the next thing. Yeah. Like I said, they only have, you, don't have, you don't have a tactile relationship with it. So it's not, it's not as important. It's you know, a, but as I say, I'm dealing with some of this now, you know, trying to get rid of some stuff or to, to move to another location. And on one hand, I could throw out everything. You're of that age. I just wish everything was virtual. Right. It's like, okay, the DVD, <laughs> the DVDs you haven't watched. Well, there's Plex. You have Plex? You can load stuff off the Plex. What, what's Plex? Oh, Plex is the – I got a friend. I won't name his name. He's obsessed with Plex. It's – um. It's a service. It's like your own. Uh, well, you're talking about a home only, or are you talking about the cloud? It's home only, but it's cloud. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. No, yeah. It's, 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 it's your own server. Yeah, 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 anything. yeah, of course. I mean, and there's a number of companies. Right. Yes, you put, I know that. You put whatever you want on there. So yeah. Put, so he's got about 10,000 movies on there. Yeah. And you just, and Adam and Costello shorts, Laurel and Hardy, uh, you know, sit, uh, bosom buddies, you know. The, the, the problem I have, and I don't know, I don't know what it'd be like a teenager is, you have. I have no time. That's it's him. like I used to enjoy alphabetizing my albums, whatever. And I and it's like, you know, the amount of time you never. I'm busy twenty four seven. I'm not complaining right. about it, but I just want it to be able to on demand. Right. Okay. Because like you know, I'm sitting there with like twenty DVDs, some documentaries, and I say, okay, well, I can only play this at home because otherwise right. computers don't have a DVD player. And I know the problem is they go from service to service. I, if I knew they were 100% available, I would toss them. Right. But then, of course, there's other thing. Well, how many years have I owned this and not watched it? <laughs> I mean, Jim Garano, he blew everything out, which I can't imagine because, you know, there's certain shit that is never going to hit the services. That's true. But, but, but then you learn, like, when this thing with the universal fire, if you don't have a hard copy of something, some, at some day it may be gone. You know, it may not be may not exist anymore. What what did we learn during the Napster era? Somebody Somewhere has is obsessed everything. With it. yeah, yeah, that's it's like eBay. With right. some occasionally, you know, I you know, I'm afraid of throwing out. And somebody said, "You go on eBay, 
everything you're looking for, somebody is selling it. And the other thing, what we know in the fire, which is a tragedy, those are all the masters. The music itself is never going to disappear. How many steps from the real thing is something else? Right. That's true. I mean, yeah, but, but, but just making records, for example, now, so I make a record and I use this, I'm on Pro Tools 11, we're up to now, but say I made a record on Pro Tools 6. Right. It's a fucking hassle to get that drive. Or you got a drive that's a different, it's not a Firewire, it's a Thunderbolt. It's, a, it's like I've been going through that you know, recently myself. That's my, new, yeah, I got a lot of time. It's like, how many more fucking adapters do I have to get? Well, you know, it's like I wanted to connect Thunderbolt 2 and Thunderbolt 3 hard drives. Mm-hmm. You got to buy two $40 connectors, right. and I ended up being on the phone, which you don't, I always fixed it. There was a problem, which I didn't expect uh-huh. whatsoever. And then my girlfriend's got a Firewire drive, Thunderbolt 2 computer, and wants to get a new hard drive. But in order to transfer from one hard drive to another, how many adapters you need? It's just crazy. So that's the thing, at least with a master tape. It's, it, you always have a tape machine. You can always clean the head and put it on, and it'll play. No, that's the thing. I'm not saying. That it's not a tragedy. We shouldn't keep right. the masters. What I'm saying is the music is right. not going to disappear. No, I know. Well, we can sit here and BS about all these topics. Well, I wanna, but before we start, I want to hear about your thing. So I saw you. I didn't even know you played at all. When I saw you on this a picture of you playing with Dwight. So is your thing? Are you failed? Is that what it was? Were you, were you like a singer-songwriter or something? No, 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 no. I'm older than you, okay? Right. So in the early 60s, there was always the folk scene, right. okay? Everybody had a nylon guitar in the house. You took lessons from somebody in the neighborhood so you can say, you know. A7. The, the, you know, the, you know, the, the, uh, not even that complicated. EDA, whatever, right. you know, whatever. And then the Beatles hit. Mm-hmm. Beatles hit. Everybody got an electric guitar. I mean everybody. So I had a cheap, no-name electric guitar. Didn't have an amp for like a year. My father found an ad in the paper. He bought a Gibson tube amp for like $20 if I only had that amp today. Right, probably $1,000 amp. <laughs> exactly. So the way I tell the story, because you started playing in bands and you start to get uptight because they say, okay, we're going to do this, we'll do that. Then I was at my friend's house who was really talented. He goes, now we're going to change key. And I said, I'm out. Right. Okay. So you took yourself out of it. But then I got a Gibson SJ, uh, you know, you went to Manny's, whatever. And it would like, you go there with the money in your pocket. Oh, I know. And they, you know, they'd want to sell it instantly. You go, I saved this money all summer. But I ended up going to, you know, Manny's and CM Ash. But this guy knew this place way downtown, Silver and Horland. Mm-hmm. And I got this Gibson SJ. Really sounded good. The only problem was my mother put it in the fucking crawl space. And it has... <laughs> Some uh, mold on it, right. and the people first. The people at Gibson, Still have it? yeah, of course. What year is it? It's a seventy or sixty nine. Someone clean it up. Yeah, no, I knew some people at Gibson, but then those people Gibson was right. in so many trouble. They're not there anymore, and it wasn't a priority. Right. Okay, but I played that like the beginning of college just for fun. Then I never played again. No so, bands. No, no, no. I, I never had a dream. Well, the law school thing was a different thing. So I went to college. Very different from you in that I just knew I had to go to college. I didn't want to study any right. of these particular subjects, okay? And I went and I, Exactly. And I went to the wrong school because it was very conservative academically. But there were good things as Middlebury College in Vermont. This is the dark era, pre-internet, right. you know, one fuzzy TV station. So what, what, what year is this? I went from 70 to 74. But 45% of the people were prep school people such that – 
I could – I learned what real rich people were, early rich people then and how they – because I grew up in the melting pets, you know, suburbs. I never knew anybody like that. And I was the guy who had the most records, okay, by far. I would live to read Rolling Stone. And you'd schlep them there every year. Oh, yeah. That would be a big thing because, you know, I remember first they would all fit on a shelf in one of the rooms we had. The shelf was bowed, right. you know. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. I mean, I had more records than anybody on campus. You know, by, when you're in college, by the time you're in college – how many hundreds but. of records is that? But I either wanted to like write for Rolling Stone or be a professional skier, okay? So I went the professional skier route, and I only went to law school. I signed up for the LSAT when I was in college, and my friends came to my front door. I said, we're going to Montreal. You're not right. going to take that test. And I said, you're right, and I didn't take it. But then I was in L.A., and I broke my leg before the ski season. What's, so a, to go to what's a professional skier, though? Jean-Claude Keeley, but no, that, that no, doesn't I mean, exist I, anymore, does it? At the time, first I just wanted to go skiing. The most guaranteed snow is Little Cottonwood Canyon, Utah, which right. is out in Snowbird. So I went there. Little did I know that was the epicenter of freestyle skiing. Mm-hmm. This was in the renegade days as opposed to being in the Olympics. Right. So I ended up skiing with all those people. I mean, you know, world champion and all those people. Right. The next year, okay, I'm going to do that. What I did not realize, because I could ski better than the, you know, on an everyday basis in the world champion, the people who are true athletes, this is really the golfers, among other things, they turn it up when the pressure is on. And the amateur, you freeze a little bit. And then I said, it's going to take me like two years to get past this. Got the world's worst case of mononucleosis. And so I started to go to law school. Hated it. Which, which law school? Southwestern in Los Angeles. Right. Fully accredited, but right. uh, not Harvard. So I was going to drop out to go skiing. It happened to be until 2011 and 12, the worst year. You can look, they, the worst year in the history of snow in Utah. So I called my buddies. They're leaving. Okay. Well, you're leaving, you know, for Christmas. That's unheard of. And then I fell in with some girl. That was my first real relationship. I never wanted to practice law. Right. But if I went to law school for three years, I'm going to take the goddamn bar. bar. So I took the bar. When is this? This is in California. I was saying when? When, is, when did you take the bar? 79. So. Okay. So, because I spent a couple of years in Utah, in the bar passage rate when I took was incredibly low, like 28%. California and New York are the worst, right? The hardest. California is the hardest. Right. So I decided that- Before uh, after Lee Marvin. <laughs> the Lee me? Marvin case. Oh, yeah. That was happening while I was there. So- um, in any event, you take the – because I said I've got to pass the bar if I went right. to law school. You take the uh, bar and you don't find out – you take it in July. You don't find out until Thanksgiving. So in the interim, I got a job with a lawyer. I did pass the bar and I worked a little bit and then I ended up – I mean I, I think I, I could go on and on. I, ended, I was the only guy I wanted to be in the music business who was working in the movie business. Now, everybody else had dreams right. in reverse. What, what firm was it? It was like a – I was working for a law firm. The guy ultimately was famous. He made a certain amount of, number of movies, but he was famous for something else. He represented George Foreman with right. the grill, and he made money. But he was a sole practitioner, so he would literally do everything. I mean, it started off – I don't know if you know your rock history, but uh, Casablanca Records. Do I know my rock history? Well, I had a meeting at Casablanca when okay. he came when I was a kid. Okay, so Casablanca Records, they, there was a California law issue because they were the manager, right. the record collusion. label. collusion. Was, right, right. Well, that's not what they called it, but there was a law, ironically started with Jefferson Starship, where you couldn't be the agent, the manager. So we represented people who had songs on the Bad Girls album. 
So there was a lot to right. argue about. And then I went to work for an independent movie producer, and we put this band Wasp in one of our movies. And who's I, who's, who's an independent producer? Let's go back. In the 80s, making a movie was a really big deal. Today, you can make right. – they literally on make iPhone, movies right. on an iPhone. And I learned how to make movies. For, for a million dollars, you could make a movie, and most other people were not. So I worked for this guy, Charles Band. While I was there, the biggest thing we did was we – well, this isn't the biggest, but Jaws in 3D came out with Universal. And we made a storm called – an album called Metal Storm – in 3D that followed that into the theaters, which wasn't good. But he, Charlie called me one night and goes, what kind of music can we license cheap that people right. really addicted? I said metal. Right. And then it wasn't in there. And then we had a record with Demi Moore's husband's group because before I got there, Charlie had made a movie called um, Parasite in 3D. Right. That was Demi Moore's first movie. But we put this- a low, low budget horror movie. Yes. But- after I left, he was more – he directs sometimes, produced sometimes, and he did – he produced Reanimator in 3D, which is really kind of a classic. Right. And then, we, you know, I ended up working for this company, these these guys. It's basically Sanctuary Music. They've mm -hmm. changed a couple of times the name. And doing I legal? Ran, or just what? Doing legal? No. That's the interesting thing. It was not a legal job. It's running the office. We were in a house above the rainbow on Weatherly that Peter Sellers bought but right. never lived in. Because he died, and it was Iron Maiden and Wasp. Don't forget. What's these, the guy's? Uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, Ron Smallwood. No. Exactly. Yeah. Rod Smallwood and his partner Andy Taylor, right. not the Duran right. Duran one. They could only be in the U.S. ninety days. They were doing a year out or whatever. Right, right. So I remember we we had a very rich deal with Capitol Records, and we had enough money that I started the video. Okay, the video's budget was forty five k. I was in about 18K. So I call Capital for the check, and he says, uh, Gary Culpepper says, we only cut checks on Thursdays. I said, you, you only cut right. checks on Thursdays? So, you know, I call Rod, who's in the Bahamas, and I say, you know, what should I do? They said, well, this is why we hired you. Right, figure so, it out. So, you know, you call back. I go, okay, I'm 18 in. Either you cut the check or I'll bill you for the 18. So they cut the check. You know, we had a lot of power, but ultimately I lost my job over a creative issue. Uh, well, this is the type of thing. I can't believe I'm going on about this. But I, I, This is fascinating. I know nothing. I, I know okay, nothing. Well, I, you know, I was Linda Perry. I went through some of this. Otherwise, I could go on for right. a whole day. I'm trying not to repeat myself. Right. But um, we had this being lost. They wanted to produce themselves. Okay. They ended up using – how come I can see this guy's name suddenly – uh, metal, not Metal Blade. Michael Rec Jackson? Oh, oh, Slagle? No, no, no. That was the other one. The guy who fought, found all the guitars. Now he was living in Sebastopol. Farney. What? Mike Farney. Exactly. Good friend of mine. It's okay if you okay, want to Mike Farney. Yeah. What's Mike right. Farney doing today? He's a member of the Bohemian Grove. Oh, I read that. <laughs> I read that. He, but still has, he, sold, uh, he sold it to Red, one, whatever. He sold the yeah, Orchard. I remember he, that. He sold this thing to the Orchard. He lives in Vegas. I talked to him last night. We can get him on the phone right now. He's, well, he's not up. He's still a vampire. He doesn't get up till three in the afternoon. Well, in any event, right? He, he, they wanted, he wanted to produce the record, and they didn't want no, it. No, you wanted. He knew that if they hired Varney, they could boss him around. Right. It was a good experience with Varney. Varney was a nice guy. Right. The only problem, was, well, the two tracks we cut. One of them was the one that the P PMRC cut uh, went down on. Animal fuck like a right. beast. So the problem was he had this engineer. 
and really didn't know what he was doing. So the, the mixes were just fucking right. terrible. So at the time, the A&R guy at Capitol was Carter, okay, who was – what? Where's he these days? He's dead. Oh. <laughs> okay. John Te- Carter was famous Te- for writing – Technically not available. Right. He was writing – he wrote the lyrics for Incense of Pepper and right. ultimately brought Tina Turner back. Right. But that was after. So I say, you know, Carter, can I come up and play you this – you know, these mixes? So I go up. I play him the mix on a cassette. Turns it off in the middle and he goes – I passed on this band three times. It was signed above me. Do whatever the fuck you want. Okay. How am I going to deal with Blackie? Right. Okay. Who's the lead Blackie Lawless, who is Wasp. Because I told him, he said, I left out part of the story. He would only remix the record if Carter said to. Okay. And Carter said that. So I'm figuring out what I'm going to say. But I get back in my office. Blackie comes back. Knew I loved chocolate chip cookies. Came with a big bag of Mrs. Fields <laughs> and said, I'll do it. Whatever. So we got this guy, Dwayne Barron, who was famous at that point because he had engineered and mixed the Quiet Riot right. records. And he, he engineered but didn't mix the uh, No More Tears Ozzy right. record. I don't know where he is today. But he now made the record listenable. The problem with bands is they have a vision of what they're going to do. Okay. Right. So suddenly it's going to be a different single. So I said, no, it's got to be this single, okay? And ultimately, Rod was in town, and he goes, I go, well, you know, we got to do this, we got to do that. He goes, well, you know, what difference does it make if the first album only sells 100,000? That was a stiff, right. which I had the opposite thing. Right. And then I was supposed to fly to, uh, to the U.K., and the Andy Taylor came back and said it's not working out because – I was stand- in the. It really fucked so me. So what, what's the single you wanted? Uh, the, I wanted a song called "Love Machine." Do right. you know that record? A little bit. It's been a while. Okay, they wanted to go with something. I want to. No be doctors so- not on that though, is it? No. What? That's, no, I, I don't need no doctors not on that record. Is it? No, no. That's that's later. Right? Much I don't later. Need a- right. Were you thinking of the Humble Pie version? No, they did a version. Wasp's version. I was, you know, after the first record, I was done. I want to be some. What's that? That's, exactly. That's, that's the record. That's that's the song you wanted. No, that's not the that's one. That's later too. Okay, though no, that was the first. That no, was the, the first, first single. single. Okay, but if you go back to that record right. and go to Love Machine, right? So okay, this is eighty-eight, uh, maybe. Excuse me. This is eighty-eight. When no, this is eighty-four. Oh, that early? Oh, Jesus. Okay. Right. So the nature of those jobs, I say, I could go on for hours. I'm trying right. to make it very short, just to edify you. So you leave management. Is that uh, you can't spend a dollar? Right. You're working round the clock. And the other thing, you know, it's sort of big. I said. The guys were going to the airport, okay, Andy and Rod. I said, you got any, got any money? I figured they'd go to the airport. They need like 40 bucks. <laughs> they go, well, you got any company money? Right. This is 1984. Right. Well, you know, I got a lot of money in the bank account. Right. He goes, well, you should have some money. And they whip off $4,000 cash. And I go, what am I supposed to do with this? Buy cocaine. Right? <laughs> and they said, put it in your pocket. And then you find you need it. Because nobody has any credit card. Whatever. Well, we want to rent a skeleton. They right. require a thousand dollar deposit. Okay, here's a thousand. So I was, you know, I'd worked on movies. I, you know, worked as a music supervisor, did some other shit. But eventually, the the money ran out, and then I started the newsletter. When was that? Nineteen eighty six. You monetized the newsletter from eighty six? Huh? Oh no. Yes. Let's. Okay. What happens is. When I would read the stuff, when I went to Middlebury, there was one professor 
who wrote sea stories badly. And when I read my shit, mm. it was like springtime for Hitler. Right. Okay. So I never wrote another thing. But when you – 10 years later, you're working – you get all these bios. The bios were just horrific. So the bios um, – I would have to rewrite them. And then I ran out of money and I went to a job counselor and they said, here's, you had to write these six essays, brag about yourself. Right. And I wrote the six essays and uh, I got back in touch. I let be a writer. So you send stuff to magazines, go, wait a second. This is just like the music business. You got to know the people. Right. So I'm reading Billboard one night. It's terrible now, right. but it was terrible then in between the Timothy White made it somewhat okay. I said, this is terrible. I could do a better job than this. Mm -hmm. So I started the newsletter and I said, I'm a, I have a target number of people that if they do, if they subscribe, I will continue doing right. it. I was really doing it as an advertisement for myself oh, to get right. into the job. What I did not expect is generally speaking, only the most successful people subscribe, the heads of all the labels. They could hear something contrary. Right. And at the time, it was all tips. I kind of do right. stuff, not tips about records. 90s were very bleak. Okay? Did you do other writing at the same time? Or just no, that's what I was doing. First Jesus. of all, it's a full-time effort. Uh, yeah, no, of course. I you had to write it. Four times a day, I know. It's like, uh, right, you know, but in the old – I don't have time to read your shit. Or, you it, it, writing it. Right, in the dark ages uh, – you know, you had to print it, you had to put it in envelopes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, then the year – I got very into the internet because I had a free subscription to AOL. When it, was, it, came, it, was, it came with your little disc. And right, right. But even before that. And then, of course – So were you friendly with Geiger? What? Guy, were you friendly with Geiger at this point? Not then. Right, because he's, you know, he's a big proponent, early days, adopter. Let's not talk – I mean I'm good with Geiger and he's great at WME, but that's a whole different job. Oh, I know. I, but I have some Artist Direct stock if you'd like to – How much <laughs> did you put into Artist Direct stock? I don't want to talk about that. OK. Well, that obviously crashed soon after it went public. Uh, but when Napster happened, I was, the, I was a lawyer. I knew what was going right. on and I was totally internet savvy. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened there. But now – you don't have to tell me. You don't, but how, how does this newsletter generate – well, at this point, I used to charge for the newsletter. Right. And then all this, all this but shit. But on, on, on email, it's free. I mean, right. Free. But what I found is, and I don't have enough time and I want to bore the audience with how I decided to make it free. By being free, Everybody. I was at the cutting edge of everything accidentally. Okay. I had this book. I go to this conference in Aspen. First year, 1999, the end of 1999. They sent an email contact list. And it's like, all of a sudden you get an instant response. Then I had this David Geffen book, The Operator, a weekend before anybody, mm -hmm. and I wrote about it, and then I got the response, and then I had a directory which had some email addresses from my subscriber list. Sent it. All of a sudden, you're experiencing, you know, virality. Remember Jefferson Holt, who was the manager of REM? REM. Yeah, of course. He starts emailing, go, well, it's fine. How did you get it? Right. Well, I got it from Mark Williams. Well, Mark Williams wasn't a subscriber right. either. So that's when I started to experience virality. And as a result of being free, this was before everybody said give it away for free. I was hearing from people all over the world and became, you know, an interesting thing. And, of course, music was a canary in the coal mine for this digital disruption for 15 years. Right. We figured it out. They still think, you know, in the, in the movie business they're going to counteract it somehow. But also I grew up in the era where music was everything. Right. And music, the, right now, the politics is the thing. Right. But they don't want to, they don't want to own that. Well, music, music. Okay, whatever it is, right. it's really about the politics thing. 
But as far as I'll give you more detail because I want to bore the audience at another time. But I love that you asked me, but we have to – We've come to the end of the feeling we've known, George. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on and tell these great you. stories. Thank you. Hopefully it was boring either. Till next time, this is Bob Lefson. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.